it will be good good afternoon recording sir. in good progress good afternoon uh, to the delegation uh, from the department of employment and labor uh, honorable members uh, staff uh, of the committee and also staff of uh, parliament broadly and media uh, TNG. Uh, welcome everybody. The time is uh, 1600 hours. Uh, we had scheduled our meeting for 1600 hours and uh, we are now starting. Can we just get an indication, uh, committee secretaries, in terms of attendance? Good afternoon, good afternoon, Chair and Honourable Members and colleagues. Yeah, what's happening to your face? We can't see. Hi, Jeff. We can't see. We can't see me. Uh, okay. That's the Parliament. You. <laughs> 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 It's like your face is covered with. Uh... I I don't know what's wrong with my face, but I've got a lot shedding from my side. Oh. But what I what I can oh, say. Yeah. For maybe, now... a, maybe the window is behind you. There's a light behind you, and then it reflects. Okay, you can go ahead and, and tell us who's uh, in the meeting. And uh, if there are any apologies. You can go ahead. We can hear you now. We've got this cloud that is next to you as well. That uh, makes you invisible. You are muted. I don't know whether you are. It's difficult to even see oh. whether you're saying something. <laughs> I see that you are muted. Check, check also, hear me now. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. For now, Chair, we have Honorable Mamarehane, Honorable Maimang, Honorable Boshov, and yourself. At the okay. moment, we have not. And who? No, I'm saying okay. At the moment, we have not received any apologies from the members. We also, we also have Ms. Isaac, Ms. Williams, and Mr. Mjangwane sent an apology to say he is still busy with the Intelligence Committee. But uh, Mr. Moimang is part of the Intelligence Committee. <laughs> Maybe he will log. Maybe he will log in later. I'm not sure, but he, he said he spoke to you about this. No, no, no. He spoke to me about the report. You remember there was that organization that was make, com, making complaints uh, about uh, the Gazette. Yeah. And then uh, I asked him to send us a written uh, uh, presentation with regard to his investigation. 
Then when we yes. made a follow-up, he said that he was busy with the, um, the standing committee on intelligence, so the report will not be ready. Mm-hmm. And then we we said, okay, he can send the report uh, in our next uh, meeting, which will be on the 15th, but it didn't mean that he should not attend this meeting. Mm-hmm. I see Honorable Moimank. Uh, we also have Mr. Apleni. Oh, okay. I see Mr. Moimang send this up. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I, 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 I want to believe that this is their full time, uh, which probably might, uh, might, might have an impact in terms of uh, what we expected uh, from him, uh, which could be the reason as to why he said he saw that committee. Uh, maybe the, the other his seniors... I uh, must talk to him so that at least uh, that work should be given to one of his colleagues to be able to 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 to, to meet our expectations as a committee. But I know that is there full time now. Thank you, Chair. Uh, they're in the intelligence? Yes, yes Chair. Oh, okay. Chair, we also have the stakeholders that presented their submissions in our last meeting, and we also have the department. Okay. All right. Um, the stakeholders will be here as uh, observers in this meeting, so they won't be allowed to uh, contribute. Uh, they had their opportunity last time, and uh, now we'll hear from the department on the employment equity as well as on the COIT uh, amendment bill. Welcome, everybody. Um, can we then start with the uh, employment equity, if the responses? Uh, over to you, uh, Mr. Mkalif. Thank you, Chair. Maybe first, before we continue, we'll just introduce uh, the delegation from the department. We've got uh, Karabo, Magangane, we've got Vuyo Mafata, Niresh Singh, Mili Reitas, and Harry Mapokohela. Now, that's a delegation. If I miss up anybody uh, who Mr. Mafata can assist. My colleague, Nsoaki Mamashela, the Honorable Chair, will do the presentation. Nsoaki, can you fly the presentation and then do the presentation? We'll take the questioning together, but she will do the presentation. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson, and good afternoon or good evening to honorable members of the committee, the senior management of the department, my colleagues from the legal service in parliament, our stakeholders that made presentations to this committee. Chairperson, I'm trying to put it in a slideshow. I think it's clear now, Chairperson. Chairperson, I need to, to explain upfront that our responses on the Employment Equity Bill actually summarizes responses on both the written submissions 
and the oral presentations that were done to the committee on the 22nd of Feb. You'll see in the slides, Chairperson and Honorable Members, that we are actually giving the constitutional mandate and the purpose of the Act, and then we dwell into the matters arising from the written and oral submissions by stakeholders, and we'll talk to the issues relating to the issuing of the compliance certificate and areas where we agree with the proposals that were made in the presentations, and then give an update on the consultation process with the relevant sector stakeholders regarding the setting of sector targets. However, Chair, seeing that this is not our first presentation to this committee, we did a presentation outlining the provisions of the amendment bill previously. I will not bore you, Chairperson and Honorable Members, on the constitutional mandate, which emanates from Section 9 of the Constitution. It, this is the provision dealing with the protection of human rights to equality and the elimination of unfair discrimination. And we are all aware, Chairperson, that the Employment Equity Act was enacted to give effect to the provisions of Section 9 of the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. And in this regard, Chairperson, the purpose of the Employment Equity Act is to promote equal opportunities and fair treatment in employment by eliminating all forms of unfair discrimination in any employment policy and, and practice. And also, the second leg is to actually implement the affirmative action provisions to ensure that those that were previously disadvantaged, meaning black people, which are African, colored, and Indian, women of all races, and persons with disabilities, irrespective of your, their race and gender, should get, get a fair opportunity to participate in the economy. Chairperson, I'll, I'll then go straight into the matters that were arising from the submissions that were done both written and orally to this committee. We have tried, Chair, to summarize all the matters according to common themes that were emanating from the submissions. The first issue that came out, Chairperson and committee members, was the constitutionality of sector-specific EE targets versus quotas, meaning Section 15.3 of the current Principal Act versus the new proposed amendment, Section 15 capital A versus the framework and section two, 217 of the constitution. The other theme that came out of the submission was section 16 relating to consultation with employees regarding sector EE targets and section 42 on reasonable steps taken by employers versus justifi justifiable reasons in terms of the new insertion in section 53.6B of the bill Another area of contention was the issue of Section 53.6 in the E-Amendment Bill versus the Compliance Certificate and the Procurement Law. Another issue that emanated was the penalties as contained in Schedule 1 of the EA versus the sector targets. In this regard, uh, Chairperson and Honorable Members, we gave provision in the slides to recall the current section 15 of the principal act that deals with the implementation of affirmative action. Of importance to this, the discussions 
to, to, to this committee is section 15.3 that states that the measures referred to in subsection 2D include preferential treatment and numerical goals, but exclude quotas. This is very important because in most of the matters arising from the submissions that were made by our stakeholders relates to sector targets versus quotas. And another section is section 15.4 that states that subject to section 42, nothing in this section requires a designated employer to take decision concerning an employment policy or practice that will establish an absolute barrier to the prospective or continued employment or advancement of people who are not from designated groups. This is very important because one of the submissions also talks on the sector targets being barrier, absolute barriers to the prospective or continued employment of other groups that are not from designated groups. In this regard, we are mentioning the, the white males and foreign nationals that are not part of the designated groups. In this, to give context to the issue of quotas versus E targets, honorable chairperson and honorable members, it's important that we draw a distinction to make it clear that there is a, a difference between quotas and sector EE targets. Quotas are mandatory and compulsory outcomes. So there's no here or there. You need, it's a must that you comply with quotas. Again, quotas are rigid and must be achieved at all costs. And penalties instituted for missed outcomes, no consideration of justifiable reasons. Therefore, if there is a quota that is re regulated, penalties must be instituted if someone does not comply with a quota. And there's, there is no flexibility. And hence we are saying, Sector EE targets are different, uh, Chairperson, that these are aspirational goals. They are flexible, but attempts must be made to achieve the goals where reasonably practicable. Again, there is flexibility already built into the draft EE regulations that we published in 2018, where we have provided justifiable reasons in, which are contained in EEA. 15 form that is in the regulation. These justifiable reasons, honorable members, were discussed and agreed at NetLag with all social partners. We'll then dwell into the first issue regarding quotas versus EE targets, which were raised by the Financial Intermediaries Association of Southern Africa, FIA. Their argument is that the current targets are hard-coded, uh, and with the current fines and penalties contained in the EA, they amount to quotas. And therefore, non-compliance will impact the licenses of financial services providers. They even provided a, a constitutional court ruling between the SAPS and the Solidarity Trade Union, which was issued by the Constitutional Court in 2014, arguing that suitably qualified individuals must be beneficiaries of affirmative action and measures directed at affirmative action should not be quotas but numerical goals. We, are, we, are, we disagree with this notion, uh, Chairperson, because if one looks at the sector targets, the way I've explained them, explained them above in the previous slide is that the sector targets are not hard-coded. 
and therefore they are not unconstitutional in and in relation and in conflict with the constitutional court judgment that was issued in the SAPS and the solidarity case. Reason being that the committee should bear in mind that all social partners at NetLag discussed the provisions of Section 15A and made sure that there should be flexibility created to allow employers to first regulate their own annual targets towards achievement of the sector target that the minister would have regulated. And by setting their own annual targets at chairperson, employers are required by section 16 and 17 to actually consult on the annual EE targets towards the achievement of sector targets that would have been regulated by the minister. Therefore, there is flexibility and, and that removes the notion of quotas. In addition, I must emphasize that Netflix Social Partners made sure that we, we also make provision for justifiable reasons to be raised by employers in instances where they fail to achieve the regulated target by the minister, the sector target. Therefore, there is flexibility and employers know about this, those that participated at NetLag under organized business. Another issue that was raised regarding quotas versus e targets was from Business Unity South Africa. They are arguing in their submission that the, the numerical targets which are set will constitute obsolete barrier or quota if the certificate of compli compliance is withheld for failure to actually achieve the, the sector targets. And they are quoting that this will be against the current section 15.3 of the Employment Equity Act. They further argue that if we continue to promulgate the amendment bill as it is, inclusive of section 15 capital A, this will be in conflict with the provisions of section 2173 in the, in the constitution. We argue from our side, uh, Chairperson and honorable members that we disagree with the arguments by BUSA. BUSA was part of the negotiations at, at NetLag where it was agreed that we should create flexibility to ensure that the sector targets are not an absolute barrier and do not constitute quotas. And again, I want to emphasize the flexibility has already built, been built in, in two ways in the regulations by allowing employers to set their own annual targets towards the regulated sector targets and also by raising a justifiable reason. And we believe that the e-regulations provide implementation guidelines which constitute a framework in terms of section 217 of the constitution. There is nothing unconstitutional in, in this matter, Chairperson and honorable members. We just wanted to also uh, uh, emphasize how the flexibility has been built in, and I've already alluded to, to the annual targets that are going to be set by employers themselves in consultation with the employees. Again, these are justifiable reasons that are, that are already catered for in the regulations. 
We agreed with all social partners, chairperson, and honorable members that employers can raise any of these justifiable reasonable grounds that are inclusive of insufficient recruitment opportunities, promotion opportunities, insufficient target individuals who are suitably qualified, if there is a court order or the business has been transferred or there are measures or acquisition of business and the impact on business economic circumstances. We all know now that unforeseen economic circumstances always arise. In the past two years, we are hit by COVID pandemic. No one actually planned for this. And this had a huge impact on employers achieving their own EE targets that are in the EE plans. Therefore, we have already catered for such situations that are unplanned and are as a result of pandemic like the COVID-19. We argue, therefore, that sector targets are not quotas. We continue, Chairperson, to respond to the issues on Section 15, Capital A of the Amendment Bill. In this area, again, Busa came back and, and also argued that the sector targets should be set in, consult, in consultation with the relevant sector stakeholders and joint consensus seeking approach must be adopted. And they are also arguing that the act needs to make provision for instances where agreement cannot be reached between the minister and the relevant sector. First, we agree that where possible, consensus must be reached with sector, sector stakeholders on the setting of sector targets. However, we disagree that the bill must make provision for another process in instances where there is no agreement on the se sector targets. We believe that after 24 years of employment equity, we have all noticed and we can all agree that there has not been any significant progress because all the E targets were self-regulated by employers. Even after consultation or in consultation with their own employees, the pace of transformation has been insignificant. We therefore believe that it is important that the minister is given powers to still regulate sector targets based on the advice of the Commission for Employment Equity. I just want to remind members, uh, honorable members, that the Commission for Employment Equity is, is consisted of organized business, organized labor, and community constituencies, including government. Therefore, these are people with expertise in this area of employment equity. If there is disagreement, the minister must still take advice from the Commission for Employment Equity and regulate the sector targets. The second issue was raised by CASA on Section 15A, Chairperson. They are, they are arguing that there is insufficient empirical evidence to enable the setting of targets. And they commit to collaborate with the department to conduct research, to collect empirical data so that the targets are informed. We disagree with this notion because on an annual basis, employers from the construction sector, they submit EE reports. In this EE reports, there is quality data that provides 
indication where the sector is in relation to transformation. We therefore don't see any need for another research because the empirical data is already available in the Department of Labor and the Commission for Employment Equity on an annual basis together with the minister publish the employment equity status of the labor market reflecting on each of the economic sectors that we are busy consulting. We are continuing, Chair, there were a lot of comments on Section 15, Capital A. The Master Builders South Africa also raised an issue here on Section 15, Capital A, that the, the provision is very silent on the criteria for identifying and setting sectoral numerical targets. They secondly argue that the bill is silent on the need for the minister to reach consensus with the relevant uh, uh, sectors. They further argue that Section 15, Capital A2 should include the requirement for the minister to determine the criteria for identifying and setting sectoral numerical targets jointly with the economic sectors. First, we disagree that Section 15, Capital A it's not clear in terms of the criteria to be used by the minister to identify the economic sectors and for the setting of sectoral targets. If we look at the current section 15A capital, uh, 15 capital A in the bill, it is very clear that the minister in identifying the economic sectors must consult the, the standard industrial classification of economic activities code, which is published by State South Africa. And this was done by the minister on the advice of the Commission for Employment Equity and 18 economic sectors were identified and published for public comments in the draft EE regulations of 2018. This was also discussed at length at NetLag with all social partners. And we all agreed that the 18 economic sectors meet the criteria as outlined in the current bill. And there were no opposing public comments against the 18 economic sectors that were identified and are published in the e-regulations of 2018. On the second issue, we are saying that we agree that where possible, we should reach consensus with the sector stakeholders before the minister can set any sector targets. However, we believe that where there are no consensus with stakeholders, the minister must still have powers based on the advice of the Commission for Employment Equity to go ahead and regulate. If we don't do that, honorable members, then it defeats the purpose of why we are amending the principal act. We all know self-regulation has not worked over the 24 years of the Employment Equity Act. Hence, the minister must have powers to regulate the sectors to ensure that we, we fast track the pace of transformation. The other issue that was raised, Chairperson, was on Section 15, Capital 3, by the Banking Association of South Africa. They argue that the, this provision gives the minister the powers to set targets in consultation with the National Minimum Wage Commission. And I think they were mistaken because we disagree. They were looking at the wrong version of the amendment bill. This was corrected by the Portfolio Committee on Employment and Labor to revert back to the network agreement. 
So if we look at the current bill, section 15, capital A3 has been corrected and it refers to the Commission for Employment Equity. And it also says the minister must consult with the relevant sector stakeholders. Here, Chairperson, if you allow me, I'll spend a little, a little bit of time because there were proposals that were given by FIA, ASISA, and SAIA on Section 15A, Capital 2. They are requesting that we should delete after consulting and we should insert all those areas that are highlighted in red, which uh, states that in consultation with the relevant sectors, including regulators, where applicable. We disagree, Chairperson. We believe that if you delete the words after consultation, then instead, when we insert in consultation, it means that we are taking away the minister's powers to still regulate the sector targets. And this, again, I want to emphasize, it actually defeats the intended objective of the sector targets. And, and also it defeats why we want to address the mischief of employers self-regulated targets. I think over 24 years, we can all agree, self-regulation has failed to transform the labor market. The other area was 15 capital A3. The red, that the letters that are in red, these are the new insertions that were proposed by the three organizations. They are saying that at the end, where a sector provides sufficient reasons for such a distinction, such a difference in skills requirements, the minister may set different numerical, numerical targets per subsector or region. We disagree with the proposed amendments on section 15 capital A3 to cater for skills requirements because employers had over 24 years of the Skills Development Act to develop the skill set required in their own sectors and by their own uh, companies so that they can transform their own workplaces. We believe that if we have all started in 1998 when the Employment Equity Act and the Skills Development Act came into effect and started building or developing and training people in the required skills, we wouldn't be sitting with challenges where now business is raising the skills shortage as a, as a, a matter of concern and they want that to be included in the bill. We believe that it is the responsibility of everyone in the labor market, meaning employers together with the workers to identify the skills required for their own sectors and actually utilize the skills levy that they are paying on an annual basis to develop and train people in the required skills. Therefore, the, the insertion cannot be accepted. The last area was the section 15A, capital four. At the end, the, the, the three organizations are, are proposing that we delete 30 days and replace it with 90 days to comment and engage with the minister thereon. We disagree with the proposed 90 days for the publication of the notice of the regulated sector targets. Reason being that if we look at the current bill, the 30 days, the bill says at least 30 days, meaning that the 30 days is a minimum time frame required and not a maximum period for the publication of a notice. And 
we don't understand. There's no rationale, honorable members, that we, we, we want the minister to publish the notice on the sector targets for 90 days or more. Because if we say 90 days, it means the minister cannot publish it for less than 90 days. And the act is very clear. The minister cannot publish it for less than 30 days. It can be more than 30 days. The minister can decide that this is a very sensitive issue. The notice will be published not for 30 days, but 60 days or 90 days. But moving it up to 90 days is very unreasonable. And we don't see a rationale also, Chairperson, to actually engage with the minister after the notice has been published because we would have completed the sector stakeholder consultation before the minister publishes the notice. Again, Basa Chair raises an issue lastly on Section 15A that they are of the view that targets that are being regulated should be set nationally and not be differentiated by region because they believe that most of the banks are, have a national footprint and they will not be able to comply with multiple sets of targets. And this will result in businesses having the burden of restructuring and having to manage and monitor the compliance requirements. We agree with BASA on, on this one, Chairperson, that where possible, employers that have a national footprint must be given a, a choice to comply with national sector targets. And those that are regionally based, they should actually be given an opportunity to choose the regional uh, sector targets. And this can be addressed if the committee could give consideration to the proposal by COSATU to section 42A of the Principal Act, where we can change the word end to or and allow employers to choose the national economic active population demographics or the regional economically active demographics when they deal with compliance to their relevant sector targets. And we, we have actually outlined the proposal that was made by COSATI in slide 19, which I'm still going to discuss uh, later on. We are moving now to section 16. I'm trying to summarize chairperson and honorable members without reading word by word. I believe that honorable members have read the presentation. Busa is arguing here that if the minister sets sector targets and these sector targets are prescribed for compliance by designated employers in their equity plans, it will override the powers of employers to consult with employees in terms of sections 16 read with section 17 of the principal act. And by so doing, they argue that it will be useless for employers to pursue and comply with section 16 and 17 because now the minister would have regulated the targets for them. We disagree with this and with the arguments advanced by BUSA because already chairperson and honorable members, 
the regulations have created the flexibility that if the minister is going to regulate a three-year or a five-year sector targets, employers together with their employees will still have powers to consult and regulate how their annual EE targets contained in their own EE plans towards reaching the sector targets should look like. Therefore, there's no conflict between the current proposal of section 15A, uh, section 15 capital A in the bill vis-a-vis section 16 of the principal act that deals with consultation because employers will still have to consult on the annual targets towards reaching the five-year regulated sector target by the minister. In fact, it is important to highlight that the implementation plans of the amendments is that the minister will not set any sector target that is less than three years and nothing more than five years. Hence the flexibility that consultation must still take place at the workplace on how employers and their employees reaches the five year sector target. We are looking now at section 22 capital A, which is a new insertion in the bill versa B section 42 one small letter A, capital A of the E Amendment Bill. First, I'll speak to the section 20, capital two, uh, uh, two, capital A. That wants to align the numerical goals in the employer's E plan with the relevant sector targets set in terms of section 15A. The proposal here from the three organizations, which is FIA, ASISA, and SIA, is that we should scrap or delete the wet sectoral, so that this, the new insertion talks to the numerical goals set by an employer in terms of subsection two must comply with any target in terms of section 15 capital A that applies to that employee. We disagree with the proposed deletion of the wet sectoral because employers are required to comply with the sector targets which are relevant to their sectors. Meaning that if the minister regulates a five-year sector target, the five-year sector target becomes a numerical goal that must be reached by each employer in that particular sector at the end of the five-year period. Therefore, to remove the sector, the weight sectoral, it actually defeats the purpose of linking Section 15, capital A, with the requirement to prepare and implement an E plan towards the achievement of the sector target that the minister would have regulated. We disagree with this amendment. The, the, the other one was given by the four organizations, the three above and BUSA, where they are arguing that section 42, one small letter A, capital A, should state that whether or not the employer has or taken reasonable steps to comply with or achieve the applicable target as set out in terms of section 15A applicable to that employee. Honorable members, we have all looked at the bill and we disagree that the proposal is actually relevant at section 42.1 capital 
as small capital A, uh, small A and capital A, because Section 53.6 already prescribes the justifiable reasons or reasonable grounds that any employer can raise for failure to achieve the sector targets or even to achieve their own annual self-regulated target. And all the justifiable reasons I've already alluded and, and, and presented in prior slides. And again, Netflix social partners agreed, not only in the discussions on this amendment bill, they, were, they agreed that the words reasonable steps should be deleted from, from the principal act, which is section 42. Hence, if you look at the Employment Equity Amendment Act of 2013, Section 42 was amended to remove reasonable steps taken by employers because it's difficult to measure reasonable steps. And this will open a floodgate for abuse by employers in each, in each sector. Chair, I turn back to the proposal that was given by COSADU in terms of Section 42A of the E-Amendment Bill. I must say upfront, Chairperson, that the department realized after the bill went to parliament that the, the amendment to this section, which formed part of the NetLag agreement, fell off between the department and the tabling of the bill in, in parliament. And we believe that COSATU's submission that we live in a diverse South Africa, we are a diverse nation, and often our diversity is linked to the geography. Therefore, it is important that the targets that are regulated should take into account the regional and sub-regional demographic diversity of our, our nation in South Africa. They argue that the, the one-size-fits-all targets will not work, will actually create a social strife if we go that route. And we agree to this proposal, Chairperson, and if the committee can consider this proposal to give effect to the NetLag agreement that we insert the amendment on Section 42A of the capital principle to ensure that there is a choice between the national and the regional economically active population demographics. We are just changing the word and and inserting or so that we also cater not only for Kosatu's concerns raised in their presentation here, but this will also cater for organizations that operate nationally, just like the banking. South Africa uh, uh, Banking Association of South Africa argued in their submission. And shall we, we submit that we think this will, will be a progressive amendment to ensure that we take into account the diverse diversity in our nation and make sure that those that operate regionally are able also to comply with the sector targets because they source their workforce from the regional demographic of the economically active population. Last, the other issue was section 53.6, Chairperson, I'm about to finish. It's just that we received a number of submissions to this bill, and we tried to cover all areas in our, our responses. 
Section 53.6a, Chairperson, Fia, Assisa, and Saya made a recommendation that we should insert the reasonable steps as argued under Section 42, which I, I discussed earlier. And with the same notion, Chairperson, we disagree because if you, you, you start defining or prescribing reason, what reasonable steps constitute, we are then going to risk opening a flood of gate for non-compliance where each sector will come up with their own list of the reasonable steps that must be con considered for, for failure to comply with the sector targets. And we believe that this will actually defeat the objectives of these amendments. Again, there was a submission on section 53.6b, where the, the three organizations argue that the bill must set out factors that are to be considered in determining whether an entity has a reasonable ground which justifies non-compliance. And these factors should be included in the bill itself. And we, we argue strongly that the justifiable reasonable grounds that are contained in the regulations of 2018 should be lifted and be inserted in the act itself, in this bill. Reason being that it was agreed at Netlag with social partners that in future, there may be other justifiable reasons that needs to be included in the list that is contained under regulation 16 in the EE regulations of 2018. And if you put it in the act, it takes a lengthy process to actually amend the act to include any future developments in relation to justifiable reasons. Hence, it was agreed with all network social partners that it's important that we create flexibility in the regulation, in the regulation because the regulations are discussed at NetLag and we can am amend them at any time when a need arises instead of amending the act. Hence, we're saying that there were no opposing public comments in this regard that we should leave the justifiable reasons in the regulations and not in the act. On, that, on, on those basis, we disagree with this amendment. Again, MBSA had an addition, they also argued in a similar fashion that the reasonable grounds should be in the act. And they also argued that under the reasonable ground or the justifiable grounds, we should include the minimum period required to complete an occupational qualification. We disagree with these uh, uh, proposals. We believe that Justifiable uh, uh, grounds agreed that NetLag should stand as they are in the current draft regulation to cater for future developments. Secondly, we disagree that we should include the minimum period to complete a qualification for each of the, of the sectors. This will be cumbersome because the occupational qualification requirements or the skill sets uh, required by each of the economic sectors. We are talking here 18 economic sectors. It will be a lengthy exercise and cumbersome, and it will allow employers to get away 
with non-compliance without being punished because they will move. We believe the, the, the skills requirements needs to be based on the needs of the business on a regular basis. So skills audits are done regularly, in most cases annually, to make sure that we match up with the challenges of the economy to sustain the businesses. So it will be a moving post. We will never be able to actually punish or, or enforce compliance with the requirements of the Act or the sector targets if we consider this request. Again, here also similarly, uh, on Section 53.6b, Busa argues that if we include the two criteria under Section 53.6b, which deals with the CCMA arbitration awards for unfair discrimination cases against the employer and the failure to pay the national minimum wage is not appropriate for this section. They believe that there are different forums that deal with non-compliance in relation to unfair discrimination cases, which is the CCMA and the Labor Court. And they also argue that the LRA and the National Minimum Wage Act provides remedies if employers are not paying the, the required national minimum wage. We are actually perturbed by the fact that after discussion and agreement at NetLag, where BUSA was part of organized business when the bill was, was negotiated, they agreed to the criteria that inserted under Section 53.6b. And there is evidence in the NetLag report if we look at page 4, paragraph 3.10.1, where there was no social partner that raised the concern to include the failure to pay the minimum wage and also the unfair discrimination award against the employer who has discriminated against employees to be inserted under 53.536B provision in this bill. We, we believe that the NetLag agreement must stand and this, this amendment in the current bill must, must be considered by, by the committee. There was a new issue that was raised on the fines and penalties, which is not part of the current EE amendment bill. FIA, ASISA, and SIA, they, all three organizations argue that the current penalties or fines that are contained in Schedule 1 of the EE Amendment Act of 2013 are not appropriate or should not be applied to non-compliance with sector targets set in terms of Section 15, Capital A. We argue and disagree that this is not this proposal should not stand. We strongly believe, Chairperson and Honourable Members, that any kind of non-compliance to any provision of the Employment Equity Act including the setting of the, the sector targets that will be regulated by the minister. The penalties in Schedule 1 should stand, and the same sanction in the same manner should be levied by the labor courts if an employer fails to comply with the sector targets and has failed to raise any justifiable reason why they 
they failed to meet the sector target or to meet their own annual EE targets towards achieving the sector targets that the minister would have regulated. We, and at NetLag, I want to emphasize the issue of fines and penalties was never a matter of concern, Chairperson and Honorable Members, meaning that there was no issue to, or any concern regarding the, the existing fines. And we believe that Schedule 1 in the EE Amendment Act of 2013 must stand and be applied as a sanction for non-compliance to sector targets. Section 53, Chair, versus procurement. There was an issue here that if we issue a certificate of compliance, it's a burden in relation to access to state contracts and also it's, it conflicts with existing procurement provisions. And we believe that the EE certificate of compliance will add impetus to transform the labor market. Just like when an organization bids for a state tender, they are required to submit a SARS certificate, a triple B certificate. And all that we are saying here as the department is that we should add the EE compliance certificate to the requirements for access to state contracts to ensure that we transform the economy and we do not perpetuate financial benefits to organizations that resist uh, transformation of the labor market. And the rationale why Section 53 was not promulgated, honorable members, in 1998 when the Employment Equity Act came into effect was that everybody assumed at that time in 1998 that employers needed time to develop and implement systems and processes to comply with the requirements of the Act. And we are arguing now that it has been 24 years since the inception of the Employment Equity Act. Self-regulation has not worked. The state contracts are being given to organizations that resist transformation. And now that we have developed tools and the criteria to assess compliance and issue certificates, we believe that we are collecting quality data and 99.9% of all the reports that are submitted annually are done online. And we, we think that in the same vein, the certificate of compliance will be issued online. The process will be automated. Hence, we are ready to actually uh, promulgate section 53. And this is just for information for the honorable committee to look how at, at the process of issuing of compliance certificate this is it's going to be automated. There will be no manual certificates that are going to be issued by any of our labor inspectors so that we avoid any bribery or, or fraud in issuing of certificates of compliance. There will be verification with the CCMS uh, case management system and the national minimum wage exemption system to ensure that we are giving certificate of compliance to people that meet the criteria under section 53 and again small employers will will register online do a declaration in terms of the in terms of the EA 15 form that is in the regulation 
and the certificate will be issued to them immediately if they are paying the national minimum wage and they have no adverse arbitration awards against them for unfair discrimination. This is a simple criteria and the automation will make it easier for the issuing of the certificate of compliance. SAFSEC argued in their submission chairperson that the labor inspectors will take bribery and there will be fraud in, in exchange of certificate of compliance. We believe that we live in an environment, uh, Chairperson and Honorable Members, wherein corruption bribery is rife. But this should not stop us to enforce the law or fear, have fear to enforce compliance with the law. We must all deal with the two parties that are involved in corruption. We believe that there is a corruptor and the receiver of bribery, and both must be punished for the, to, to be able to eliminate the sketch of corruption. And we should not deter or be scared to actually continue to enforce all the laws, whether it's labor laws or criminal laws, so, ta, so that we are able to create peace and stability in our labor market and create society which is free from corruption and bribery. There was an issue also raised by Black Business Council in the built environment. I'm about to, to conclude now, Chairperson. They want to forge partnership with the department to increase capacity for enforcement. And they were proposing that the act must be amended to allow partnership. We believe as a department there's, that there's no need to amend the law because we are not adverse to partnerships. We believe that any organization, including the, B, the Black Business Council, if they want to help the department to enforce compliance, we are welcome to look at their proposal as long as we can improve compliance with the EEA and transform the labor market and create econ uh, inclusive economies where everyone will be able to benefit from the fruit of our economy. Area of agreement is only one chairperson, I'm concluding. We agree with the proposal by Kosatu and we request the committee to consider the inclusion of this amendment on section 42A, which was part of the initial NETLEG agreement, but was omitted by mistake when the bill was tabled in parliament. Update Chairperson, we are continuing with consultations with the relevant sector stakeholders. We started in June 2019, and this far, the financial and insurance sector have reached consensus with the department on the proposed sector targets for the financial and insurance sector. And we are now busy, Chairperson and Honorable Members, looking at all the submissions in relation to the proposals on sector targets that were tabled by the department and the Commission for Employment Equity. And tomorrow we are also continuing with feedback. We are consulting with the mining sector and we'll be meeting other sectors that are remaining to ensure that we are ready to implement the amendments when parliament and this committee have finalized the amendment bill. I thank you, honorable chairperson for the opportunity. We have covered all areas. Thank you very much.
thank you so much, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Mamashel, uh, for the presentation uh, on the responses of uh, the department uh, to the submissions that were made by the stakeholders. Um, uh, before I allow members uh, to ask questions for clarity, I just want to also acknowledge the presence of the Office of the uh, Chief State Law Advisor uh, and also the Parliamentary uh, Legal Unit. Uh, can I give uh, to the Legal Unit uh, of Parliament and uh, also the Office of the State Law Advisors if at this stage they want to make any comments? Thank you, Chief. From the Office of the Chief State Lawyer. Maybe you've got two gadgets there. Thank you, Chief. Can you hear me better now? Yes. Good afternoon, members. Chief, at this stage, we have nothing further to add to the um, submissions made on the Employment Equity Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Parliament legal units. Um, thank you, Chairperson. Um, I, I don't want to repeat what the department has said. Um, maybe just to 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 emphasize the issue. The biggest issue was that of um, procurement and compliance compliance with Section Two One Seven of the Constitution. And what is required is that these uh, where they are employment equity targets, they must be. Um, you know, uh, they're not, not in any way impeding Section 217. This is about employment equity and the procurement laws still continue as is. This is an additional requirement uh, of a certificate. So it does not change the existing uh, Preferential Procurement Act or the Section 217 of the Constitution, but it is a pre-requirement of having a procure, uh, employment equity certificate that will be issued by the minister. Chairperson, uh, section uh, clause four, which was the uh, intended section of 15A, uh, there was a lot of issues about um, the minister consulting with the relevant sectors. And the issue was whether the minister should be in consultation or after consultation. And I'd just like to emphasize the, the legal difference between in consultation and in consultation, there must be a meeting of the minds. And after consultation, the minister will be required to give all relevant sectors a reasonable opportunity to be heard and apply his mind to what he's been said. And at the end of the day, he will be required to make the decision. The concern with having in consultation is that there may be deadlock and it will be difficult for there to be a consensus and there will have to be a deadlock breaking mechanism. Additionally, the minister is the one that has to account to parliament and therefore um, giving him the final prerogative as to determine this and he will be held accountable for that is, uh, would be preferable in this instance uh, as it will be difficult uh, where, where there is an issue of um, lack of consensus. Um, the other issue was about the uh, reasonable grounds in section 53 where a party has not uh, met the employment equity targets um, it, it could provide reasonable grounds. And just to add, I, mean, I would suggest that in Section 53.6, it may be uh, 56, uh, 53.6b, 
it, it refers to section 42.4. It may be suggested that it, in there, because the department is referring to regulations in which a specific ground will be provided as to where a party can say they have not met the employment equity targets, it may be necessary to tie that up and say that where there's reasonable grounds to justify a failure to comply, it is prescribed in regulations. So just that we can tie up what the department is saying that we are doing with the regulations and section 43B. Um, Chairperson, there was just some drafting issues that I would refer to in section 15A, that is clause four. Um, there was an issue where uh, one of the public submissions said that the word sectoral should be removed from clause six, which is an amendment to section two, uh, 22A. So if we look at section 15A, we see that the heading is sectoral numerical targets. And if we look at the wording in section 15A, it refers to numerical targets in uh, subclause two, subclause three. And if we look at clause six, it refers to sectoral targets. So I did discuss this issue with um, uh, the Department of Sinkaliki about the inconsistent wording. And if the committee so wish, maybe we could, I could discuss this further so we can make sure that there is consistency in the wording in section uh, clause four and clause six. Um, Chairperson, yeah, those, those were the drafting issues. And with regard to the suggestion about amending section 42A, I think the committee has previously discussed this issue and we had no, uh, advised the committee that if it wishes to insert a provision that is not already in the bill, then it will have to undertake a public consultation as this issue was not put to the public. Chairperson, those are just my brief comments for now. Thank you. Okay. Now, thank you very much uh, uh, for the advice. Um, honorable members, uh, any questions of clarities? I think for now we will focus on the questions of clarities, and then next week we'll have a discussion on on the on both the the inputs uh, or submissions vis-à-vis uh, -vis the responses of uh, uh, the department and also uh, do a close by close uh, voting. And uh, I discussed with the committee secretary that we won't be able to uh, consider the report next week because we will still be uh, considering uh, the, 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 the submissions and the responses and the close by close. But then on the 22nd uh, of March, we will then consider uh, the report. Uh, for now, we will focus on the uh, uh, questions for clarities. And if we're done with that, then we'll go to quite uh, amendment bill. Chairperson, let me apologize. I've been trying to log in on three devices, but with load shedding, it's been a bit of a challenge. Okay. So do, do you have a question? Honorable Dam? No, no, not now. Okay. Honorable uh, Boshoff, uh, Honorable Moima, that order, please. 
Thank you very much, Chair. Just a question for clarity purposes. The parliamentary legal um, lady spoke about the insertion of a clause, and if we do go ahead with it, we have to enter into PPPs, um, public participation. Can she just refer me to the clause again? Thank you. I think it's section 42A. And remember when uh, the department uh, last time they indicated to us that uh, uh, there was a mistake there, then uh, consensus around uh, that particular section. Uh, but then uh, there was a mistake that it was not included then in the amendment bill. We requested advice both from the, the legal unit of parliament and the procedural office. They were conflicting the uh, views on the issue. And then the committee then resolved that uh, we will focus on the bill that is before us. Uh, but what has uh, transpired since then is that uh, because we advertised the bill, now uh, stakeholders uh, on their own I'm, uh, I'm making proposed uh, amendments, uh, which also include the, the section that was uh, not part of the of the bill. I, I hope, Ms. Isaac, uh, maybe you can uh, elaborate further. No, I was just making sure what's that one, Chair. Thank you. No, okay. I was just, okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, Chairperson, you captured the, the uh, events correctly. Okay, maybe maybe you can clarify that aspect. Okay, we we didn't want to consider it uh, as a committee, but what is the situation when it comes now from uh, the stakeholders? Should should we ignore it uh, on the basis that uh, we we have a position on the issue already? So can you clarify for us? Uh? Uh, person, uh, in my view, nothing stops the committee from considering it. But if we uh, remember, there's a constitutional court case of the South African Veterinary Association where the committee considered an amendment during, during its deliberations. And because it didn't go back to the stakeholders who, um, and, and consult with them, then that amendment was ruled unconstitutional. So the committee may consider it, but it must also ensure that uh, the public is informed that this is a proposed amendment because it was not advertised at the NA stage, it was not advertised at the NCOP stage, and this will be the first that the broader public would be aware of it. So there must be at least some form of consultation uh, before the committee considers uh, and you know finalize the uh, proposed amendments. So yeah, yeah, so you cannot just uh, deliberate on it without a further process. Okay. Uh, maybe we will have a further discussion then when we deliberate as to what should be the way forward, whether we should uh, stick to our previous position or we consider it and then take the suggestion that you're making of uh, uh, consulting the public about it. Uh, Honorable Moima. Thank, 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 thank you, Chair. Uh, just uh, to, to aid us from my side, uh, the, the, the department uh, uh, in its uh, uh, 
my response to to issues that are raised by those that are against the the uh, the bill uh, is is mainly centered uh, from my own uh, analysis. Uh, around the assertion that, or the affirmation that uh, the issues that are raised by by, by business uh, stakeholders uh, are issues that were conversed at NetLack, uh, and that and that at NetLack there was a, there was consensus. What I want to 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 to, to get a sense from the presenter is uh, uh, is is. is uh, from 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 that point, can can can, can we uh, uh, did the department engage with that like to give them just at least something in writing to to indicate that these are the issues that we have agreed upon? The reason I'm posing that question, Chase, is whether at some point there might be a need to to engage here with that like because I think that is the the thrust of the of the affirmation that that the uh, the department is saying that uh, it's sort of a, a double standard on the part of uh, and other stakeholders to having agreed upon NetLeg to come uh, at this level again to raise issues that uh, they had agreed upon at NetLeg. That is the first point. The second one relates to to the uh, the the, the, the uh, the uh, work of the Employment Equity Commission uh, it, 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 in response in response to to suggestion that uh, there might be a need to to, to have a, a scientific or a research uh, on the the progress that you have made in terms of meeting our employment equity targets. Uh, uh, the argument is that already we have we have we have. Uh, enough evidence in terms of the employment equity reports submitted by various sectors in terms of their employment equity plans, which is a basis for the consolidation that the work of the employment equity plan is, is doing. Uh, has there been any engagement with the Employment Equity Commission just to sort of lay this point to rest? Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much, Honorable uh, uh, Member. I don't know if there are any other members who like to uh, ask questions. Uh, just just uh, on the issue of uh, net luck, <laughs> um, even if stakeholders were to agree on everything, uh, it, it doesn't bind uh, parliament. Uh, whatever uh, consensus they reach, uh, parliament is free uh, to consider uh, the legislation and take into account uh, the submissions uh, by stakeholders, including uh, stakeholders that also are members of uh, the, the network. Uh, if uh, they ever consider their position and they also perhaps there, they did not agree with some of the issues, uh, they are free to come back to parliament and uh, 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 raise the issues. Uh, though it is a dialogue, uh, uh, a platform uh, to try and reach consensus. Uh, but uh, members of uh, NetLack individually are free to make uh, submissions. That may uh, be contrary to 
uh, the decisions that have been taken, that they've got their, that right, but uh, that's why also Netlag doesn't send us a report and say, this is what uh, has been agreed, uh, and therefore consider what has been agreed. Uh, it's left to the department to uh, come up then with a bill uh, that uh, could uh, take into account uh, the issues that have been agreed at, uh, at NETLAC level. Uh, but that uh, doesn't uh, bind uh, committees of parliament and parliament uh, to uh, agree uh, to what uh, NETLAC uh, uh, has reached in terms of the, the consensus. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to maybe maybe, maybe can, can I make a follow up on that chair? Okay, that point that we have responded to. I think the uh, key, 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 key to me is, is is my appreciation of the fact that uh, this bill uh, is centered around uh, key areas uh, which uh, which are informed by the progress that we have made in terms of transformation in the employment sector following. 23 years mm. of the existence of the current act that we are seeking to amend, uh, which, 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 which to me uh, is, is an affirmation that definitely uh, where these stakeholders are sitting, there is, there is, a, there is an appreciation that uh, the targets that were set 23 years ago to a larger degree has not been met, and yes. therefore there is a need for urgent uh, intervention on the part of the state. There is a need for the state to ensure that uh, it becomes much more firmer as a developmental uh, state to be, to, to be able to intervene to uh, expedite the process of transformation in these key sectors. And therefore, it becomes important to get a sense from a net luck. Uh, to, 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 and I just in appreciation as to is there consensus around that. I think the second point uh, that, that I saw uh, from from the act is, is centered around uh, the uh, the plans, uh, which which to me is a, is is also of critical importance. I think section section one that speaks to to uh, employers uh, with less than fifty employees and employers with more than 50 employees, uh, which to a larger degree, there is a distinction. And to, to, to me, it becomes critical to, to, get a, to, to, to get a sense as to whether at that level, the issues that are raised in section one around uh, the distinction, uh, the importance of it. I know that Kosatu uh, uh, on this aspect is quite categorical to say, even those employers that have less than uh, 50 employees, this act must apply, which is quite critical because uh, at, 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 at a small and medium enterprise uh, level, that's where sometimes you'll find the brutal the brutal uh, uh, perpetuation of the status quo. But, but, but beyond that, also the uh, the, the issue of, uh, of, 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 of of inspection uh, as raised, uh, the argument uh, uh, labor inspectors are vulnerable to <laughs> or, or prone to to to, 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 to corruption. Clearly, uh, is an area that definitely uh, you need to get a sense uh, from uh, this body 
what is the, the, the appreciation of these stakeholders that are coming to make a presentation here, whereas they, 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 they agreed at that level to say that there is a need to fast-track transformation in the employment sector. Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much, sir. Okay. Any other comments? Uh, maybe uh, um, we, we should just say, Mrs. Uh, uh, Mamasha, um, was there was a lot of uh, uh, debate around the issue of uh, um, 15A and capital letter, uh, the issue of uh, determination of sectoral uh, numerical targets. Uh, for the benefit of members, uh, so that they are also able to articulate. I know you have uh, in, uh, uh, you you indicated what quotas mean and also what uh, uh, targets mean. Um, if you can again maybe try and uh, um, and explain uh, so that members can be able to differentiate. Uh, in, in, if I may make an example, say about um, uh, a rugby team, uh, let me make an example about a uh, uh, springbok, um, where at some stage there were there were quotas uh, for 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 springboks. I think at a later stage they did away with that. If they were to come with the uh, targets. Uh, instead of quotas, just can you explain for me numerical targets? What would be the difference? Because I think that's where uh, the the stakeholders like Bosa were giving uh, an impression that there is no difference between quotas and numerical uh, uh, targets. And uh, the the second point is to how then would the this the there's a EE targets uh, at a sectoral level uh, align with the the sector. I mean the targets that are, are set by uh, the the employers at uh, a workplace level uh, in consultation with the workers or trade unions. So what what how would these uh, be aligned uh, if these these targets at a workplace level that are developed for the workplace are not in line uh, with the annual target. What will be the situation in that regard? Um, the, the, the last point is with regard to uh, the issue of uh, that, that section 53, because we also had a long debate uh, in terms of clarification and also the submissions uh, by the stakeholders. Uh, particularly, fifth, uh, sorry, 53, uh, 53 D and, uh, and, and E. Uh, this issue of uh, a double uh, punishment, I, I, I saw that you you responding to that. Uh, you put up the, the point of... Uh, uh, the stakeholders uh, on that issue of double uh, punishment. Uh, but the question would be, can you use another legislation uh, to ensure the implementation of another legislation? Uh, for example, here we're talking about the employment equity uh, 
uh, bill for now, which will be then be an amendment act if it's passed. Um, so now its uh, implementation is linked uh, to honoring another legislation, uh, implementing another legislation, which is the National uh, Minimum Wage Act. Why shouldn't the National Minimum Wage Act, uh, if there are challenges with regard to it, in terms of its implementation, uh, there are no mechanisms to address. Why should it rely uh, on employment equity for it to be implemented? Um, if you can just uh, respond to, to those few questions. But then the, the last point uh, to uh, Ms. Isaac, that maybe you, as we will be either considering that section 42A or, or not, but you should be advising us in terms of the consultation with the public, how we will go about uh, that. Maybe you can advise us in the next meeting uh, in terms of the process when we consider whether we should agree to it or not to agree to it. Thank you so much. Uh, back to the department. Can I come and assist also? My colleague will take some of the questions. I think I would want to deal with the question that you've asked, the last issue of double debt jeopardy that was asked by, I think, Busa or Adawuya Busa. Now, double jeopardy has got nothing to deal to do with different legislation. It's about whether you are punished twice for the same offense. That's the issue whether it's the same legislation or not. Now, let's look at different legislation. If a company has been arrested, I mean, has been charged for corruption, in whatever legislation that uh, they were involved in, that company can still again be listed in the National Treasury list to prevent it in tendering. Secondly, if a company is not complying with tax regulation and SARS take this company to, to court and the court take its process, that company will still be prevented if it does not have a tax clearance certificate to uh, 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 get any tender uh, in government, if, if, if one, even, if, even if it's not listed, it won't be able to tender for government. Now, what I'm trying to explain in this question, Chair, that you're asking is that there is many legislation uh, that does exactly the same. The B Act. It's a B Act. If you don't comply with the B Act, you don't get a certificate. And it punishes you for that, for not, not, not complying for that in another legislation. Now, from where we're sitting, we really don't think that this is uh, anything uh, new. As I've said, if you look at the SARS provision and the SARS Act, you look, uh, uh, if you could contravene that, you can be punished. In terms of the Procurement Act, you might not be able to procure with the state uh, when you've uh, contravened the tax legislation. And, and, and that's the same uh, 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 arrangement that we're dealing with here. 
I think the other issue that I want to deal with is our argument in all of these cases is not only about the fact that it was discussed at NetLay. That is an addition that we're putting in front of the committee. But if you look on our presentation, we're putting reasons why uh, uh, we do not agree with many of these issues that are being raised. For example, the issue of uh, whether should the law look at reasonableness and say, if you've shown reasonableness in applying the law, we say the law already says that an employer can give a justifiable reason for not complying. Now, why do you want to change that? And the regulation publishes the, 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 the set of uh, justifiable reasons that you can select with. And, and, and I think my colleague can answer the issue about the commission, whether the commission was co consulted, uh, the issue about targets and quotas, uh, 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 in terms of the, the, those two questions. Chair. Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Mkale. Uh, any further responses from my other members of the team? Thank you, Chairperson. Thanks, Mr. Mkalipi. I'll start first, uh, Honorable Chairperson, with the issue of the Commission and whether there was consensus by social partners that the pace of transformation of the labor market is very slow. First, uh, Honorable Members, is that the Commission for Employment Equity is consisted of all social partners at NETLAC. And they are the ones responsible or mandated by Section 30 of the, of the Employment Equity Act to look at the data submitted by all employers in the different economic sectors, analyze it, and compile a report and submit it to the minister reflecting on the employment equity status or the pace of transformation in the labor market. After the minister releases this annual report, honorable members, it is also tabled at NetLake again in the labor market chamber to update and give feedback to all social partners that some drastic measures must be taken, seeing that the pace of transformation of the labor market is very slow. At most, honorable members, since 23 years of employment equity, the progress has been at least at 2% annual. Hence, it has, we haven't actually shifted in terms of transforming the economy in the 24 years of employment equity. Therefore, there's been discussion on this matter, not only in the commission itself, but also at NETLAC, to appraise all social partners that we must do something to ensure that the economy or the labor market is transformed. And hence, also these amendments that are being discussed in this committee were actually first discussed by the Commission for Employment Equity, and they are the ones who actually advised the minister that steps must be taken by the government to see how we can actually expedite transformation. Hence, these proposed amendments, they are actually coming from the Commission for, for, uh, for Employment Equity. So they, they have been engaged, they are sponsors of these amendments because it's their mandate to actually advise the minister on any EE policy related matters. The second issue, Chairperson, you requested that I clarify again 
the differences between quotas and targets. The difference is that if there is a quota, um, uh, for example, the minister says, at top management, you should have, out of 10 people in top management in your organization, 50% of those should be African. And you must have 50% of Africans in five years. It, and if you don't have 50% of the 10 people at top management in five years, you are, we are going to refer your non-compliance to the labor court for a penalty. And you are not allowed to provide any justification or reasonable uh, uh, reason why you were unable to reach the 50% Africans in top management. It doesn't take into account the fact that maybe out of the 10 people that are in top management, nine of them are white males who are not going to retire in five years. Then it's a rigid quota. You are going to be punished for it. It's compulsory. There's no flexibility at all. Whether those people resign or retire in five years, the quota simply means that you need to fire 50% of those people in top management. Out of the 10, you must fire the 50% to, to make a, 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 a space for the 50% Africans. That is a rigid quota, which is not allowed by the principal, uh, principal act in terms of section 53, uh, 153, which I alluded to earlier on. However, targets are, are aspirational goals. Although employers must in, uh, strive to achieve the target, if the minister says in five years, at top management in this sector, we want to see 50% Africans, uh, honorable members. There is flexibility that is given in this, in this proposal that to reach the 50% in five, in five years for, for top management, the minister says, you must go back and do a workforce profile analysis. Check who's sitting in your organization in this sector in top management. And in consultation with the employees, determine how you're gonna reach the 50% when opportunities arise. We must remember that employment equity works on opportunities that may arise. It doesn't say people should be dismissed and make way, space for those that are underrepresented. We are looking at the growth of the, of the company because the economy is growing. There will be more recruitment opportunities arises and, and we are saying utilize the natural attrition in your company to reach the 50% in five years. Meaning chairperson that on an annual basis, you do your own self-regulation based on what you have and whether you anticipate that there will be opportunities, job opportunities where you can bring more African people in your top management in five years to reach the five year regulated sector target. If the economy is not growing or your company is not doing well, you will not be able to recruit more people. And because the law doesn't allow you to dismiss people, you can raise a justifiable reason that the economy was bad, my company didn't grow, 
Therefore, I didn't have sufficient recruitment opportunities to bring on board more African people in top management. Hence, we are saying targets are flexible. I also want to, to, to bring the alignment between the sector target and the EE targets. I've also alluded, uh, Chairperson, that because the minister will regulate for a sector after consultation, maybe a five-year sector target, that I want to see top management to have 50% of Africans in it. Employers are given flexibility to go back and look at what they have in their workforce and what opportunities will arise in the five years to reach the sector target. In consultation with their employees, they will say to reach the 50% African in five years. In the first year, we are not going to have any opportunities because we don't anticipate any growth. But in the second year, we are setting a 20% a target for Africans, meaning that if there are any opportunities arising at top management, if people may resign or retire, will we'll actually target African people at top management so that we work towards the sector target. And they will do so for the third year and the fourth year, which takes them a step forward to reaching the 50% Africans in top management. And this annual target chairperson that are consulted with employees will then be included in the EE plan towards the five-year sector target so that on an annual basis, they are being assessed on how they have actually achieved their own annual targets towards achieving the five-year sector target. And a certificate will be issued to them on an annual basis. And if they are, they are failing to actually reach their own annual targets, they can then raise a justifiable reason that the COVID-19 came in, the economy didn't do well, there was shut down, and we couldn't actually uh, have any recruitment opportunities to bring in anyone on board into our company. Then they will still get the certificate, but because all of us are aware that the economy was hit hard by, 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 by the pandemic. So I think I've clarified the linkages between the E plan, the consultation and the annual targets and the sector targets that will be regulated by the minister. I thank you, Chairperson. I think we have covered all areas. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Because I just wanted clarity on that because there could be a difference between a, a sector and the workplace. You could reach the target in the sector but it doesn't necessarily mean some of the workplaces within that sector have a, a, a reach that hundred percent. So that's why I wanted to clarity on, on, on that respect. Uh, when you talk about sectors, because uh, you could get hundred percent or ninety percent in the sector, uh, and yet within the sector itself, there would be workplaces. Uh, that are still at 20, uh, for example, but under the umbrella of a sector, uh, they've reached 99%. Uh, so that's why I wanted the, this uh, alignment. What does it mean? Uh, would you say because that sector is a, a 99% and therefore it, it, uh, all the companies that are under that uh, 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 sector have then complied on the basis that uh, you're dealing with uh, sectoral uh, targets, not necessarily uh, workplace targets. Uh, Honorable Dango? 
Chairperson, based on the question you've just asked, uh, will uh, this provision stand up to constitutional muster or will there be a myriad of court cases taking place over time? Okay. Maybe if I can, we can get a response to that because that's one, especially in that area, uh, there were always those uh, issues that were raised about uh, uh, the constitutionality, especially uh, Section 53. Any response? Uh, are we confident that uh, uh, these provisions uh, are constitutional? Thank you, Chair. Maybe just, maybe just a follow up on that, Chair. Yes. Yeah, because look, you get a sense that uh, from 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 uh, last year's presentation, the the uh, we agreed that uh, the, the, there's a need to fast track transformation, but uh, the, the 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 affirmation that they are making is that. Uh, uh, Section 15A undermines uh, the Constitution, therefore it is unconstitutional. It, undermine, it undermines economic growth uh, and employment creation. Uh, maybe just in addition to, to the point, the question raised by Honorable Tango, what is the, the department's response to that? Uh, Mr. Mkalepi, we're coming in. Thank you, Chair. I mean, our view is that first is that we'll never be able to stop any court challenge on our legislation. There will be court challenges. And employment equity is a very contested area. Any transformation legislation is contested in this country, precisely because you've got people who are beneficiary of privilege who wouldn't want to let go. And you've got people who do not have those privilege who'd want to have them. That's what the employment equity is about. Therefore, we can't guarantee that there will be no challenge. But we are confident that this bill will, will stand uh, uh, any challenge. In drafting this bill, we had sound uh, legal advice on it, on how to craft it. The sound uh, legal advice started at NetLeg. At NetLeg, when we were negotiating, there were legal advisors there. When we were drafting the bill, with the commission, they were legal advice that they're working with us, uh, 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 supported by the ILO. We asked the ILO to come with us and work with us on this. Therefore, we're confident, but we can't give the committee a guarantee that there will be no challenge, not with employment equity. We're definitely sure there will be challenges, but we're confident. It went to, as, as we indicated, to the state law advisors. The state law advisors look at it, they satisfy it, and the legal advisors of parliament have also looked at it. They see nothing wrong with the bill. But we can't say that there will be no challenges. There will be challenges, and we'll have to take those challenges. And sometimes court challenges enriches legislation and, uh, and policy, and we should uh, welcome it. The Barnett case, when it came out, it enriches the implementation of this of, of transformation because it may clarify all the issues that were not uh, clear in terms of this the threats of constitutionality. The sooner a constitutional challenge comes, the better for all of us so that we can have clarity uh, upfront on the issue so that we don't leave with this that people continue threatening that they are going to go to the constitutional court. 
and then therefore, chair, for us, we are really confident. But I mean, you, you can never be sure in court. Uh, you can't say, even if we say you are confident, I mean, there might be something else we don't know. Uh, but from us, we think it has covered all the bases. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Mkalepe and uh, uh, Ms. Tswagi. Um, can we go then to the next uh, bill, uh, court amendment bill? I don't know who's taking us uh, through. So he's a co-host there, so I assume that he's the one who's taking us through. And it's a long presentation. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. It's a long presentation, Chair, but I will not take long. Some of the slides will just speak through them. Uh, We take it that the honorable members have read the the presentation. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to respond, Chair. Chair, if you don't mind, I can keep keep my video off. I'm in a load shedding lens here, so I don't want to affect the network. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. So I'll do the, the first part of the presentation, Chair, quickly, and then uh, my colleague, Mr. Herima Polohera, will then take the committee through some of those specific points in the uh, in the presentations that we're, we're making recommendations on some of the wording in the, in the bill. Trying to just move on the presentation. Apologies. So the, our, our, our response, uh, Chair, would be uh, around four areas. So focus on the, so there was a lot that was said around the socioeconomic impact assessment study. So we'll be briefly reflecting on, 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 on that and the position of the department on that. The issues around, so they, in, in, in support of some of the presentations that were being made or, in, or comments or inputs that were being made by some of the stakeholders, they made some statements around the uh, lack of rationale for some of the amendments that we're making owing to the fact that our turnaround time when it comes to payment of claims is excessively long and hence they are not uh, recommending for the committee to process this bill. So we just want to rebut some of those uh, statements with some of the statistics that we will be showing the committee. And we also then would also have more specific comments on the one section of the of the bill, which is section 73, uh, the amendment to section 73 by inclusion of subsection 4 and subsection 5. We just want to comment a bit more in detail because that is a, a major, uh, or what was seen as a major amendment from the side of the stakeholders that commented, and they had a lot to say about it. So we just wanted to give the uh, rationale for what was the reason for the initial amend, uh, uh, amendment that we're making, and also the one that has now been f- settled on that was published as part of the bill approved by the National Assembly, and the rationale for why we see it fit for this uh, subsection 4 and subsection 5 to be in the bill, and the evil that it's trying to uh, to address. And then we'll then lastly then focus on, on some of the specific issues that have been recommended for inclusion or amendment or omissions. So we'll then reflect on that. That's what Mr. Mapunov and I will take the committee through. So starting with the socioeconomic impact assessment study. Um, so this, the socioeconomic impact assessment study is an instrument that was developed or adopted by cabinet for government, for any proposed bill or policy that government will take out to, to the public. There is a requirement that this internal government process be conducted 
And this is conducted with the assistance of the Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation. And before we can table any bill to cabinet, uh, be it we're tabling the bill to request approval to go to NEDLEC for engagements or whether we're publishing or we publishing the bill for, um, for comments post the NEDLEC process. It is a requirement that it needs to go through the CES. And the COID amendment bill is no different, uh, contrary to what has been said. And there is a stand template that has been uh, set by the Department of uh, Monitoring, Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation, which is the, the template that was complied fully by the department and completed and signed off and presented to with the bill together to clusters of the DGs before the, 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 the bill was presented to cabinet and also when it was submitted to cabinet that Sayers' uh, report was part of, uh, of that. And there is no legal requirement for us to publish this Sayers' uh, report, save for the bill itself that we are uh, proposing to, uh, to the public. So we conducted this uh, in 2018, 2019, and we then finalized the bill after having done this uh, socioeconomic impact assessment study with the Department of Planning, Monitoring, and Evaluation. And as part of the process of, uh, of, of, of developing the, socio of doing the socioeconomic impact assessment study, we also consult internally with, uh, with government uh, within government, with various government departments, would then whose areas of operation would be influenced by the by the bill and those that can contribute and input into the bill. So we do wide consultations internally. Beyond the socioeconomic impact assessment study, we also did uh, consultations on the bill itself. So after the cabinet had approved the bill for. Uh, uh, submission to um, to cabinet. We actually did and also post the discussions at NEDLEC. We published it for comments and we also had specific public consultation processes across all provinces, inviting all stakeholders to come and present and give their inputs in terms of the bill. In fact, we did this before we even went to, to cabinet with the, final, uh, with the final bill. And when we came back from cabinet, it was ready to be submitted to to the, to the National Assembly to be processed. So all the inputs that were taken as part of the consultations were taken into account in, de in, in developing the specific um, clauses that are in the amendment. In fact, some of these uh, is the results of uh, those consultations, the inclusion of, of, um, of domestic workers, so as a result of those consultations that the minister uh, had uh, conducted with the sector before. We also took into account some of the issues around the no-fault clauses that are in the bill. But as a result of talking to organized labor and many other, uh, those that are in the labor market with the, trying to see how we can further improve and remove some of the bottlenecks that are currently leading to a lot of repudiation of claims. So things like those were considered after having received those inputs from, from the members of the public. Um, I mentioned the departments that we consulted with Chair, I'll just put the slide. And we also, I think in keeping with also the cabinet decision of March 2009, we also submitted the bill to the Office of the Chief State Law Advisor before we were even ready to submit this bill to, um, to, to cabinet. 
Chair, when we look at the, I'll just touch, I will not be detailed on this presentation, Chair, the numbers are there in the slide, but just, just talks to some of the issues that have been raised in the presentation in terms of our performance. Now, Chair, a lot was said around the rationale why uh, certain stakeholders exist in the COI process because of the fact that the compensation fund takes uh, a number that was mentioned, there was about 241 days to process and pay medical practitioners' claims. So this uh, slide just shows the, if you look at and just in the last five years in terms of the performance targets that we had set ourselves for each of the financial years, uh, in 2016-17, for example, the performance indicator that we had set for ourselves was that all medical invoices would be finalized and paid within 60 working days, or 85% of them would be finalized within 60 working days of, uh, of receipt from the uh, medical practitioner or those that represent the medical practitioners. And the, if you look at the performance, we're able to do 89% of all medical invoices that we had received. And you'll see the quantum of the volumes as well as the amount of medical claims that we received were able to be paid within 89, 89% uh, 89 were paid within 60 working days. If you look at 2017, 2018, this was increased to 93% of all claims received will then be finalized and paid within 60 working days if a claim is rejected. And also that decision would have already been known by the uh, medical service provider by then. And in 2019, 2020, we actually went further and reduced the turnaround time in terms of days. From 60 days, we then reduced this to about 40 working days. Right, And this is the year in which we implemented our new system. We also had a freeze on payments for a couple of months, and hence we could only pay 69% of claims within the 40 working days, with the remainder of the claims being paid outside of the 40 working days, but still less than the um, 341 days that has been uh, mentioned by one of the stakeholders. If you look at the last financial year that we just come from, still the target was about 85% of claims paid within 30 working days. We're able to do 93% of these claims within the 30 working days. Yeah, then this just slide just shows you the, the numbers in terms of the volumes of medical claims that we receive versus those that we're able to process within those financial years. And you can see uh, in the last financial year, we just fell shy of a million uh, invoices or medical claims that we've received from uh, medical practitioners that we had received. And 867,000 of these were processed within 30 working days and paid, which makes up that 93%. Uh, uh, so then this just shows also the number of registered claims that we received over the uh, last financial year. And we're highlighting these numbers also just to show, because a lot of the some of the presentations were referring to some of the inefficiencies of the fund and inability of the fund to be able to, to, to implement this mandate, hence the rationale for certain uh, of the practices that the fund was seeking to regulate uh, was being made. So this just shows the, shows the the numbers. You can see that almost 160,000 claims that we've received. That is the claims of the injured workers. In the previous slide, we were showing for these 160,000 injured workers, we received 900,000 uh, medical claims for them. So this just shows the rent value. You see that we've paid uh, consistently around just over 4 billion rents in medical claims for each of the financial years over the last uh, six or so financial years, with the last financial year being about 4.1 billion that we paid, made up of medical benefits of about 2.8 billion, but compensation benefits of um, 124 million, as well as the pensions that we've paid 
of about 1.2 billion. So when you talk to this number of 124 billion, if members can just bear in mind of this number, there is some slides later on where we will show some of the problems and the challenges that we're trying to resolve by trying to regulate some of the conduct of, or even those that deal with the compensation fund to submit claims on behalf of those that are injured. Um, when we go to, to so that was just, a, just to show the, the numbers in perspective in terms of the work that the compensation fund has done in the, over the last few years. If we go to the next section, this next section just talks to the, our response on the amendments to section 73. This is an amendment that was met with many um, uh, objections and I think resulting in the amendment the way it is now in terms of the regulation, the minister's ability to be able to regulate um, some of the third parties to ensure that when they do interact with the fund on behalf of the stakeholders of the fund or the key stakeholders of the fund to be the employer or the medical service provider, they do so within the rules that have been set and in compliance to the relevant legislations that govern the work that we do in the compensation fund. So these uh, third parties uh, that also have been presented, they then say they represent both employers and medical service providers. And uh, I think the claim made is that they are assisting the fund to carry out its mandate. So one of the things that we uh, will be taking the select committee's apologies for the wet portfolio committee is to make sure that we just show the legal basis and the framework under which these third parties operate as well as the legal framework in which the fund operates, which influences some of the policy recommendations that we are that we are we are making. If uh, so, the fund derives its mandate number one from the COID Act, uh, which is a Schedule Three A public entity, and we are then required as a public entity, we then required to comply with the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. And also, secondly, we need to comply with the Public Finance Management Act, which is the supreme act in terms of the administration of many state institutions. And so we operate in a highly complex uh, regulatory environment, over and above the three legislations that I've mentioned above, and many other legislations that affect the kind of work that we, that we do, and I'll touch on that uh, in, in the next slide. So we have many departments that influence and impact in the way that we work. Uh, the Department of Home Affairs, the Department of Health, other public bodies such as the CIP CIPC, the um, South African Revenue Service, the uh, Department of Health through the Board of Healthcare Funders in their role in administering the practice code numbering system on behalf of the Council for Medical Schemes, we also have the health professions councils, which also then regulate the conduct as well as those that are entrusted with the responsibility of providing medical care to those that are injured in the workplace. And many other public and private bodies that we have some of the uh, requirements that we need to comply with. So, and, and, and lastly, and most importantly is that, so we also have the National Health Act, which is an act that regulates the need the health system in the country. So particularly section 14, 15, and 16 of this particular act has a direct impact on the work that we do as a compensation fund. And obviously, lastly, also the Popia Act, which just came into effect, which also places the legal protection on us, on us to be able to ensure that any person whose data we deal with, we maintain the confidentiality of that particular data, including those that are injured at work who 
in terms of the National Health Act are regarded uh, defined as users or patients. Um, so if you look at the, the, the role players in the whole COID scheme, so the center always has to be the injured worker. If, if, if I make an example with this particular graph, so the center is always the injured worker. So if you look at it, any point in time when an injured worker gets injured at work, the injured worker is expected to report a claim to the employer. The employer would then send the employee to the um, uh, medical service provider, which is uh, on the on, on the left hand side, and then also together with sending the, the employee to the medical service provider, he then needs to he or she then needs to send the relevant forms with the worker. If not able to send them with the worker, they need to be sent still to the medical service provider, which the medical service provider needs to complete. And once the medical service provider has completed, either sends these things back to the compensation fund or sends them to the employer. Right? And once we receive this, we're then able to make a determination and assist while the worker is being assisted with medical treatment. Uh, we communicate what the claim number is to the medical provider and also to the employer. And we communicate what we need to communicate to the medical service provider in terms of our liability decision and also to, uh, to, to, to the registered employer. And once uh, there's any issue or any information that we need from a medical provider, we're then able to go back to the medical provider to request such information. And if the information is already provided to the employer, we're able to then ask for that information from the medical provider. And we then communicate the claim numbers as well as any decisions that we make and payments that we then would have made either to the employer for temporary disability payouts because the employer in such cases pays the salary and will reinvest the employer. And if we've made a decision on the permanent disability of the worker, then the payment that needs to go to the claimant will then be made directly to the claimant. So now, these are role players which you would find in a COIT claim, and these are the only role players that are being referred to in the legislation, uh, in the COIT legislation. So when you look at the regulatory environment within which these role players need to play, you can also see that there's specific requirements that each of these need to comply with, and they comply with these things to maintain integrity and to make sure that the ethical conduct of each of the parties in the role that they play in assisting an injured worker or a patient in South Africa, that they do so within the um, ethical boundaries and requirements that have been laid down by law. If you look at on the left-hand side, the healthcare providers with the Department of Health, which would be regulating the conduct of healthcare providers through the licensing that they provide to the healthcare providers. You also have the practice code numbering system, which is administered by the Board of Healthcare Funders, who do so on behalf of the Council for Medical Schemes and uh, regulated through the Department of uh, Health. You've got the professionals themselves, those that are treating workers, have an ethical code of conduct that they need to comply with from the Health Professions Council of South Africa, as well as many other association or voluntary associations that they belong to that represents those professions that they, um, that they belong to. So no medical provider can claim from a medical aid, nor from the compensation fund, if they don't, for example, comply with the requirements from the board uh, of healthcare funders in terms of the practice code number that uh, is offered through the, um, by the Council for Medical Schemes. You also have the compensation fund itself, which is bound by legislation within the government, Department of Labor, and set legislation in the form of the COIT Act, you've got the National Treasury, which also then comes in with, with the Public uh, Finance Management Act and the Treasury regulations and so on. 
So, and the employers themselves over and above having to comply with whatever requirements or licensing requirements that they are required in terms of the industries they operate in. They also require them to be registered with the DTIC in terms of the um, Companies and Intellectual Properties Commission and many other regulatory requirements. So you can see these role players that I spoke about earlier on have a specific legislative and a and, and a specific codes of conduct that they need to comply with, which regulate and govern the way that they operate. And in both these instances, I have not even mentioned once any of the third parties that for who then say that they're playing a role in, 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 in assisting employers and medical providers and so on and are critical for the um, for the for the administering of the COIT legislation because they aren't governed by any standards or any other uh, industry body that we are aware of, which ensures that they maintain a certain level of ethical conduct and so on. So now if you look at the type of, uh, of third parties that we have in our environment, uh, so we have multiple third parties. We know that employers, or most uh, employers, would choose to outsource certain administrative activities, which is a practice that is implied across many sectors and for different things. So, and we do in our business process take into account this particular fact and we've built and designed our system to accommodate this particular fact that some employers would not choose to do certain administration themselves and they'll outsource this administration to somebody else. Um, so, if you look at the, some of the examples that we have in terms of those that are in our environment, we're switching houses, who are appointed by medical service providers themselves to use the technology that they have developed to help them to submit medical claims to the compensation fund. You saw we receive about 900,000 medical claims. That's huge volumes of medical claims. In most cases, a doctor around the corner may not be able to have the muscle to be able to have an administrative system to administer these things on their, on their, on their own, because they don't only claim from the compensation fund, but they also claim from other medical aids. So they will then choose to utilize a switching house to be able to help them to submit these claims to these healthcare funders, such as the compensation fund and others. And this would then be based on the rules that that particular funder, healthcare funder, compensation fund, or any other medical aid would have set for the submission of such invoices. And then once we receive such invoices, we then process them as the invoices from the doctor and pay the doctor directly or the healthcare provider directly, if it's a hospital or any allied healthcare practitioner. The second form of third parties that we've interacted within our environment are practice managers. So same thing where a medical service provider may not want to manage their own practice, but they would choose to outsource and focus on their core job of treating clients. And in such cases, they may then use this facility practice manager to manage their practice and such a practice manager will then on behalf of the doctor enter into a contract with the switching house and the switching house working together with the practice manager, they then administer all the claims that the doctor submits to the compensation fund or to any other medical aid. And then we then pay, once we receive that, the owner of the claim is still the doctor. He's just appointed these um, two parties to be able to help him or her to submit claims. And when we pay, and the obligation in terms of the treatment of the clients and any responsibility towards the client. And COIDA places not only the responsibility to treat the client, but also to submit specific information to the fund. That still lies with the medical provider, and the medical provider still then gets paid directly by, by the compensation fund. 
Then you have also the third type of third parties, which is the third parties that have presented before the committee here. So these are third parties that... Um, so in fact, this is, before I get to those ones, there's these third parties that would also then be appointed by a, 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 a medical provider to also do administration, receive claims, submit the claims on behalf of the doctor to the fund or to any other person based on the rules. And then we then still continue to pay the medical provider directly as well. The last ones, which are pre-funders or other third party agents, which are the ones that are presented to the committee before in the last session. So these are third parties who do things slightly different. So these, they pre-fund uh, doctors or pay, that's the word they use to pre-fund or procure. But in the, in the legal sense, they basically procure the claim of the doctor from the doctor and submit this claim to the fund based on the rules of the fund. And then in this case, the fund would then pay back this particular third party because they own the claim. Right? Um, and in most cases, what you've seen with this, they would also then do the same responsibility. They would also take responsibility of registering the claim that the doctor has, has, has sold to them, to the fund, because without a claim being registered, they're not able to even get um, their claims through and ask to accept liability to pay for this. So, and one of the things that we, and in most of the cases, there's major challenges that we find in this particular practice because the interest is never about the claim of the injured worker himself, but the interest is about a doctor or a pre-funder recovering their money by getting paid by the compensation fund because they've got this claim. So what they do is enough to be able to make sure that the medical claim gets paid, but is never sufficient to ensure that the injured worker gets to see his claim finalized and uh, paid. And in most cases, then the worker is found in the limbo because the medical practitioner has received his money from the pre-funder, the pre-funder has received his money from the compensation fund, and then the worker is left to fend for themselves uh, in terms of seeing to it that their claim is being uh, attended to. So with the amendment of section 73, we're actually, uh, with, the sub with the inclusion of section four and five, we want to be able to, con to, 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 to the minister to be able to regulate some of the conduct that, uh, these third parties uh, with regards to their role in that they play in the in, in, in the claims to make sure that there is control and regulations that they have to comply with so that all parties who are party to benefit from the void legislation do indeed benefit and it's not uh, one-sided as currently as it is. Um, if you look at the, I spoke about the compliance requirements in my earlier slide and this just highlights those in terms of a medical provider must uh, be uh, regulated by the National Health Act and its regulations. And in order to claim from a healthcare funder, and a healthcare funder is a, any person who pays a medical bill. It can be a medical aid, it can be the individual person and so on. And they cannot claim if they're not registered with the practice code numbering system that is managed by the Board of Healthcare Funders on behalf of the Council for Medical Schemes. And the National Act also helps defines what is an authorized institution, what is healthcare personnel, what is a healthcare provider, what is a private health establishment, and what is a public health establishment, and what the legal responsibilities are. And once again, the National Act focuses and gives those definitions in terms of those role players that are, in terms of the Quiet Act, are also required to treat those that are injured at work. And if you see here, the the state parties that uh, I've mentioned earlier fall outside of the ambit of the National Health Act. 
even including the Council for Medical Schemes, there is no regulatory oversight over uh, these parties that is able to ensure that their conduct is within the ambit of the law as well as it's in the interest of the public that um, are meant to qualify to to, to are meant to, to benefit from the legislation that um, legislators have put out. And if you go to the if we look at the some of the legal challenge in terms of this whole practice of seeding of invoices and uh, to 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 to, uh, to third parties, so the National Health Act Section 14 of the National talks about confidentiality in terms of keeping the information of a user. Now, a user is any user of the health system in the country. So, a patient is a user uh, as defined in the National Health Act. Right. So, any information related to his or her health status the treatment, or even their stay in the health establishment is confidential. So in terms of Section 15, it says that no person may disclose such information right? unless the user consents to that disclosure in writing, unless there is a court order or any law that requires that disclosure, uh, and also if the non-disclosure of the information represents a serious threat to the public health. I'll show in the later slide how this applies to the compensation fund. And if you look at Section 15, it also talks about the health worker or any healthcare provider that has access to health records of a user may disclose such information to any other person uh, as is necessary for any legitimate purpose within the ordinary course and scope of his or her duties, where such access or disclosure is in the interest of the user. And once again, the user is the patient or the person that is being treated in the health uh, healthcare establishment. Um, and the personal information that is referred to in the National Health Act is the, act, is the personal information as defined in the Promotion of Access to Information Act of uh, 2000. And if you, if you now look at that and you look at the fact that the invoices that the healthcare provider has to submit to the compensation fund has to then comply with the requirements as laid out in the regulations of the Medical Schemes Act. And the National, uh, the, the Medical Schemes Act and its regulations actually prescribe what must be in a medical invoice that is submitted by a healthcare provider to a healthcare funder or payer that he must pay. And if you look at it over and above the normal biographic information in terms of names, details, and so on, the practice code of the doctor, if you look at uh, point number F, the relevant diagnostic and such other item and code numbers that relate to such relevant health service. Right? So if a person is sick and is treated by a doctor, the specific uh, clinical codes that a doctor would then show in the invoice to show that this person was treated for this and for that and for that. And these codes are codes are then used by healthcare funders such as ourselves to be able to know what this person has been treated for. And these are codes that are available on the internet published by the World Health Organization. So uh, also the, if you look at uh, GH, the date in which this was uh, rendered, the nature and the cost of each item, uh, where a pharmacist is going to supply medication according to a prescription. The, um, so, so, it, so all these other things that I need to be, uh, to, be, to be mentioned, and these are all the things that an invoice needs to comply with. So if you look at a, an invoice that structure and format that we've issued, uh, that we've published as the compensation fund that a medical provider needs to comply with, complies fully with these requirements of the Medical Schemes Act and these regulations. Above is just an example of a medical invoice as it appears on our system, for example. Uh, and if you look at some of the, 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 the if you look at the item that I've, 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 I've cycled here in the middle of the, of, the, of the invoice, it just shows you the diagnosis code, which is S82, 
V49.82. So if you go to the World Health Organization website and you download the ICD-10 codes, and you go and check this particular ICD-10 code, you'll be able to see exactly what was the diagnosis of this person who, uh, whose invoice is being submitted to, um, to the compensation fund. So if you look at some of the items that I've, I've, I've sort of like blocked out is the claim number, it shows the name of the patient, it shows also this, uh, who's the, the, the doctor that was treating the patient, what's the name of the patient, the ID numbers, and uh, and, and, and so on. So this is the invoice that would then, in normal circumstances, if a doctor chooses to sell his right to a claim to somebody else who's not regulated, and this person then has all this access to this information with whoever that they work with, and then they're able to process this claim and submit it to the compensation fund as if it's their own. Bearing in mind the specific requirements in terms of the National Health Act to give the information of a patient or injured person or who's now a patient in the healthcare establishment, they're confidential and only doing it to um, another provider who is assisting with the well-being of that particular uh, health worker. So you can already see problem number one in terms of the challenge that this practice poses. And if it's left unregulated, it becomes a bit of a challenge with regards to what other purposes this information of an injured worker could be used for. Um, so if you look at the, secondly, I think over and above the legal challenge, you also have operational challenges that the use of third parties also would impose, which requires need for this uh, relationship to be regulated. If, if you remember the previous slide that I showed uh, in terms of the operational challenges, in terms of the, the role players in the COIT scheme, with the third parties involved, with most employers and or medical practitioners that uses the third parties, you often find a situation as is depicted in this slide. If a person is injured, the injured worker being at the center of this uh, diagram, they report the injury to the employer on the right, and the employer then sends the uh, employee to a healthcare facility for treatment on the left-hand side, and they would send this information, send the, the forms and the relevant information to the healthcare practitioner for them to complete what they need to complete. And once they've completed that, instead of the chain continuing either with the medical practitioner sending the information back to the employer or sending the information to the client, you find a situation where they treat the injured person, but the information gets sent to a third party away from the fund. And the third party is then is the one who sends the information to the compensation fund based on the information or the claim that they would have procured from this particular healthcare practitioner. And in most cases, you find that because these are the people that communicate with the fund. When you're communicating information back to the injured worker or to the employer, try and make sure that you get whatever outstanding information. Because the people that you're able to contact are the third parties. If it's not in their interest for this particular claim to be finalized further, but they have been paid what is in their interest, which is the medical invoice that they've procured from a, a medical practitioner, then the information that you're requesting from an employer in respect of this particular injured work will just lie there in a black hole and not go anywhere. You often hear complaints from workers who say, I was injured many years ago, my claim was never attended to. Most of these workers, you find that they went to a healthcare facility, they were treated. The healthcare practitioner was paid, but the injured workers' issues were never finalized because that information ended up somewhere in a black hole on the bottom uh, 
uh, screen here. So, and this, are, this are some of the operational challenges that if some of this conduct is not regulated, it continues to keep this and people that end up suffering is the injured worker when everybody else has been able to, um, to benefit the worker. The employer has discharged his responsibility in terms of making sure that the claim gets submitted and registered, the person gets sent to a medical practitioner, but uh, the injured worker himself is left in the limbo because there isn't anybody who is uh, making sure that his things uh, are attended to because even when they do get sent, they get sent to a person who doesn't have any interest in the, uh, making sure that this particular person benefits and gets what is due to him in terms of the law. Um, so just to highlight the challenge that I'm talking about in terms of the outstanding information, and I will not spend time on this, any person who gets injured, there is a fully completed form that needs to be completed uh, by an employer. When they send this information to the, when they send the employee to the doctor, on the same form, there's information that the doctor needs to complete, uh, that's the, uh, which the, which is then employers, which is the report that would be used by the fund to make a decision based on the notice of accident that the employer has submitted and the accident report that the employer has submitted together with the medical report from the doctor, we're then able to make a decision whether this is an injury on duty and we accept liability for it. Accepting liability is important because it then opens up a credit or a medical facility for this doctor, for the person to be treated at a facility, knowing that the compensation fund then takes full responsibility for all the costs of such treatment. So if we've not accepted liability, you have a situation where the worker can still be treated, but then either the employer or the worker himself will then be required to pay the healthcare facility because nobody else has accepted liability for this particular claim. So that is why it's important to get this information in full to enable the fund to be able to, to, to do so. And oftentimes, um, if we go to, if I just go to, um, to this slide, so this is the form as it shows. Um, so you have the first part, which is specific, must be completed by the employer. You've got the second part, which is specific, must be completed by a doctor. And there's a specific part that we then need to come to the compensation fund. Oftentimes, you find that if this claim comes through a third party, specific part that relates to the accident and the responsibility of the doctor in terms of the first medical report will be completed in the report. But the rest of the information that is required, if you look at this form, has a number of pages. The part that should be uh, completed, questionnaires, that enables us to assist the injured worker to take the claim further over and above paying the medical provider. If that part is never completed, it means you end up with a situation where you've accepted liability for the claim, you've paid the medical practitioner, and because certain parts are blank, because it's not in the interest of the third party to follow up the employee and say to him, this information is missing, you need to complete it or you need to submit it, then you find a situation where the worker is in a limbo and then often waits a number of years to... Um, to get the, um, his or her claim uh, finalized so that he can get closure and uh, whatever is due to him in terms of that claim. Um, I think the, so as, as I indicated, as I conclude and allow for Mr. Mopolokhala to just continue with the specific issues related to the inputs that were made on specific clauses. So if there is a break in the chain in terms of the specific role players and, people, and claims are submitted by people other than those that are authorized to, right? We are unable to then be able to assist the employer speedily. And then this whole legislation doesn't become then in the interest of 
the injured worker, but interests other parties except for the primary person who's supposed to benefit from this legislation in terms of the ILO um, standards, which is a worker in this instance. And that's largely the reason why we want to make sure that the conduct of everybody who operates here does comply to a specific standard and the person can be held to that particular standard. And if there's non-compliance, there are consequences to that uh, non-compliance to the standard that has been agreed and set for each of the role players. Chair, um, I think maybe just lastly, if you look at, I made a point earlier on that, for example, in this whole process, you find that people that end up benefiting more from a quiet process than it's not the injured workers in the main, mostly. It's mainly the healthcare practitioners who would then have their issues sorted. And the healthcare practitioners play an important role in making sure that workers are treated and those that are able to get back into employment, they do get back into employment. If we look at the, just looking at the 2020-2021 financial year chain, you would see that almost 2.8 billion, comprising of about 644,000 invoices was paid to medical practitioners, it was processed to medical practitioners. And during that year, we had registered about 160,000 claims and liability for about 89,000 of these claims was accepted. But when you look at what we eventually were able to pay in that financial year, because you have all the information and you're able to finalize the claim in that financial year, was only 43,000 claims out of the 160,000 claims. And we were only able to make a payment of 267 million. It's almost 10% of the value that you paid in medical costs to the injured worker. Now we know that the amount in terms of the claims that we paid to the injured workers will never be the same as the ones that we paid to the healthcare providers because of the cost of, of, of medical treatment. But you expect the quantum as well as the volumes of claims that you finalize and pay to be higher and up there with those that you have received as opposed to this process of waiting long. And in the same process, we've paid this 2.8 uh, billion that we have of 644,000 medical invoices to practitioners. So up until such time that we make sure that the worker becomes the center of any compensation claim, we'll continue to have scenarios like this because the interest of the workers, though there are many other that claim to be representing the interest of workers in the space, but the interests that they truly representing are those of third parties as well as some medical service providers who are working with these third parties. Uh, if I just then maybe just go to Mr. Mapolokela on the responses on the proposals for the inclusion and amendments uh, as we draw towards concluding our presentation. Mr. Mapolokela, over to you. Uh, good, good evening, Chair, members of the, the committee, good evening. the officials of the department, and the office of the Chief State Law Advisor, the attorneys for the committee and the staff for the committee. Uh, my name is Harry, Harry Mapolohela. And Chair, you, you would notice immediately that uh, we didn't mention the names of the stakeholders uh, who made uh, 
submissions to the to the committee and uh, we only dealt with the substance of their submissions on the understanding that uh, the committee will be in a position to link after juxtaposing uh, our responses and uh, and the submissions without wasting time chair uh, i will start with uh, the submission that was made uh, on the definition of uh, accident uh, which is uh, section one the actual submission is that uh, an accident or occurrence arising out of now look what comes next or in the course of an employee's employment and resulting in personal injury illness disease or the or the death of the the employee uh, if you look at that and has been replaced with or now let me state this up front there must be a causal link between employment and between occupational injury or occupational disease because we compensate for disablement or for death caused by occupational injury or or disease so if you you you, you read it the way that the lawyers read it uh, it would mean accident means incident or occurrence are arising actually it would mean it means incident or occurrence arising out of employees employment and resulting in personal injury then you'll have the second leg accident means an incident or occurrence uh, in the course of employees employment and resulting in personal injury illness occupational disease or death of the employees the two elements must be there at all times you can't be uh, separate the two it can't be or it must be always and let me give an example of a nurse uh, who treats uh, uh, a person who has contracted uh, uh, a virus covid 19 virus uh, he is employed is in the course of employment and then uh, for one reason or the other without treating the patient uh, he contracts the virus you see there's there's no link there but if you contracts it while she's treating that patient who is COVID-19 positive, then you can see the link. There must always be that link. 
that is our, that is what we compensate for. So the removal of that weight will cause problems because then it will delink uh, work from injury itself. Next slide, Commissioner. Next slide, Commissioner. Oh. Thank you. And uh, in addition to that, there was a submission that uh, the word occupational must be added before, before disease so that it reads occupational disease. That is, in fact, what is in the bill. Um, I think this uh, submission is, uh, is delayed in nature because this is what was agreed upon at NETLEC, and it reads exactly like that. If you look at that, the bill as it was amended by the portfolio committee. Next slide, Commissioner. And then on the transfer of the Director General Administrative Powers to the Commissioner, there was a submission that, uh, in fact, there are some inaccuracies as far as uh, uh, the cross-referencing is concerned. There is elsewhere where you still find the word uh, Director General, where in fact you should be finding the word uh, uh, Commissioner. And uh, that is true. I saw one instance of that. Uh, but the good thing is that uh, there is omnibus clause uh, which uh, deals with substitution of certain expression in the act. And the relevant one is there, which is uh, D, I think it falls under um, clause 62, not section, but clause 62 of the bill. It says Director General, it says by the substitution for the expression Director General, wherever it occurs of the word commissioner, except in the following, in the uh, stated uh, sections there. So if by one reason of, or the other or by human error, uh, we, we did not see that we need to replace Director General with the Commissioner where it is appropriate, then this uh, omnibus expression will cater for that. And uh, I must not credit it to ourselves it was the advice that came from the Office of the Chief State Law Advisor. Next slide, Commissioner. And clause 89, it deals with the amendment of uh, section 69. There is a submission to say uh, the notice that must be published before you amend Schedule 3. Schedule 3 deals with, uh, um, I think, percentages of, of or, or, or disease, I can't remember that. But uh, it says uh, it should be changed from 30 to 60. But in fact, what what is in the bill and what is in the act is 60. Uh, as agreed at NetLag. So I think there was a typing error where, in fact, we were supposed just to delete 30 days' notice. 
but then we use the drafting convention of uh, uh, using the uh, bold square brackets. So it would be my request and the request of the department that this committee rectify that because it's just a, a typing error. As it, as it is in the principal legislation is 60 days, as it is in the bill is 60 days. It's just that there is 30 days that is in uh, uh, bold square brackets, which uh, suggest or may create the impression that in fact it was 30 in the principal and now it's changing to 60 because 60 is uh, underlined. On the fines and penalties, the concession at net like the engagement forum and the position of the department was that uh, our, our legislation assistance needs to be decriminalized. In other words, we need to remove uh, criminal provisions from it and then replace it with administrative fines. Only a court of law is competent to impose fine and that would uh, link to the offense uh, where a court takes into account the number of uh, issues before imposing that uh, fine, rightfully so, the submission indicates that you look at the gravity of the, the offense, and then you look also at the proportionality of the offense and whether it's deterrent or not. So, but we felt, we, we agreed at NETLEC that uh, uh, we, 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 we should uh, replace fines and criminal offenses with just uh, administrative penalties. In other words, where there's non-compliance, the commissioner can just impose an uh, administrative uh, penalty. And uh, we also agreed that it doesn't have to be reflected in the actual amounts, as the submission was saying, to say you must put the actual amount uh, of what uh, you are going to impose uh, as an administrative penalty. But we agreed and settled for 10%. Like the chair said, maybe we were under the impression that whatever is agreed upon neglect, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's given. But also it will be foolhardy for us to participate in the NECNEC process and you go back as a department and then you don't take into account what the, uh, the social partners agreed upon. It wouldn't make sense. So maybe we're under the impression that whatever we agreed upon, it's, 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 it's final, at least for our purpose. But now we understand for parliament it's not. Um, or maybe it could have been recorded. I'm not sure. Uh, it could have been recorded as an area of disagreement in the minutes. Uh, I'm happy that Mr. Mimeng, Mimeng, uh, at the later stage, they may have to require some records, maybe in the form of minutes of consultation with neglect, and then this can also be checked at that stage. And the 10% was just a concession. It was a, a consensus penalty that was reached at, uh, at NetLeg. Thank you. Next slide, Commissioner. Section 70, here we are dealing with uh, rehabilitation and return to work. There is a submission to say, as it stands in the bill, 
is not sufficient to ensure that people can uh, work as independent contractors or they can be self-employed, but that it will uh, only restrict them to the work that they previously did. Uh, but uh, that is not so. The ambit of Section 78 is so wide that uh, it would include uh, rehabilitating people to such an extent that they can be involved in activities such as being independent contractors, self-employment. You can upskill them. Uh, you give what they did not have. You can reskill them. You uh, give them what did they what they did not uh, have. Fortunately, we already have the draft regulation on rehabilitation and return to work. We already have a, a, a policy uh, on that. And it, it talks to these things that uh, I am mentioning uh, at this uh, high, high level. And then uh, the same organization also made a submission that we must not use the word may, but we must use a mandatory word must or should uh, when when we we, we, we say the, the the employer may participate in the rehabilitation programs. We say it must not say may participate but should say must. It must be a must. Uh, well we opted for this word because there is a provision in the, in the bill uh, that provides for incentives when an employer voluntarily participates in the, rehabilita in the uh, rehabilitation and re return to work in the sense that the premium that you pay uh, may be less because you would have spent money on rehabilitating your uh, employees and ensuring that uh, some of them at least they don't lose their work as a result of or their employment as a result of uh, injuries or occupational uh, diseases. Thank you. And then, but also we didn't want to come up with legislation that is uh, accusatorial or adversarial where you will struggle to get a buy-in but it must be a reasonable concession. And we believe this is a reasonable concession. On the issuing of the license, uh, the, the, the submission was saying there is a concern that uh, uh, because in the future, financial institutions, all of them, will have the option to apply for, for a license. And uh, chances are that the uh, insurance companies would be the ones who would be granted the license because they have been in the business for, for too long. Uh, the, the concern was that they may use te 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 <laughs> they may be, be decline the, the, the claims on technical issues. So that is a fear to say, um, it's there's that problem, but uh, we, our response is, we believe that already the bill, actually the legislation as it stands, it contains sufficient 
mechanism to deal with that issue because the minister can impose conditions by way of prescribing them in the regulation. And the DG is also empowered to determine condition for provisional settlement. This simply means you are a licensee, you are given a license, you can receive claims, adjudicate, accept liability. But it is the DG who must confirm it to say it is final. Before the DG confirms it, it's provisional. Of course, it's not going to be done on a daily basis. There will be intervals at which uh, a licensee will have to licensee or licensees will have to report to the DG and say, these are the claims that I accepted, or these are the claims that I declined, and the DG may re-look at it and say, you must still accept those claims because you repudiated them on, on technical basis when in fact you are dealing with social security legislation. And then uh, also the board, because it is rep represented in a compensation fund, and his role is to advise not only the DG, but also the minister and the commissioner. They can also advise on the, the conditions uh, for the purpose of uh, proper, proper governance. Next slide, commissioner. Next slide, commissioner. And then, uh, there was also a submission, maybe before, yeah, you can leave it here, Commissioner, there was also a submission that uh, the licenses must be advertised and be acquired by way of uh, open procurement. We agree with that, uh, with that submission. The reason why for so many years they have been going to two mutual associations is because the act is talking about mutual associations and there are only two of them uh, so far. And now let me come to the investment of the funds with PIC. The submission here is that uh, if the commissioner is given powers to invest the funds of the compensation fund uh, without the involvement of the DG, that could, that could give the commissioner uh, too much powers with regard to those funds. But in fact, the DG is the accounting authority of a compensation fund in terms of the principal act and also in terms of, of the bill. So there is no way that the commissioner would do such a thing without the approval of the DG because uh, this delegation of authority, it goes according to the thresholds of, uh, of funds. Uh, what the commissioner does, in fact, is to do research, do due diligence, and then investigate the portfolios under which the fund may give more returns, and then how those funds can be invested. Of course, the board will also assist because it has got technical people in it. But at the end of the day, is the accounting authority, the director general, who has got the final weight, and he will also account to the minister. So you can see it's one layer upon another layer upon another layer of, uh, of monitoring. Next one, Commissioner. Uh, then this is uh, about uh, 
amendment of uh, section 73, which is done under clause 43. It is actually the addition of uh, a subsection, sub clause three and sub clause four. Uh, the commissioner has talked a lot about this. Uh, in fact, this clause four and clause five, as it stands in the bill now, as it is before you, was actually uh, amended by the Portfolio Committee on Employment and uh, and Labour. Ours was uh, out and out ban on session. And um, there was also a comment to say, um, uh, okay, no, no, before that. Yeah, the consent to say, now if the minister is going to regulate the whole thing, uh, there's a danger that uh, he may actually uh, introduce a draconian regulations. Uh, draconian regulations. The minister may do so, but that is only a fear. There is no evidence of that. That is an angelic world of uh, con congestion. Now we are speculating what the minister can do. In any way, before everything is concluded on the regulations, the office of the chief state law advisor will have to consider the regulations for constitutionality, reasonableness, and legality just to ensure that it will pass what they call constitutional master. Therefore, the department does not agree with the submission that says the bill must be rejected. The bill must be proceeded with. It's going to bring stability into the uh, compensation fund. In that now, it will be regulated. Like the commissioner mentioned, all those things. Some of them, they relate to medical aid schemes. And I believe that the medical aid schemes are as successful as they are because they are properly uh, 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 regulated. So we are not that much different from that because we also do that business of ensuring vulnerable workers. The next one, Commissioner, I believe is the last one. Yeah, thank you. That's it. Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much uh, for the presentation. Um, what we're going to do before uh, allow members to ask questions for clarity. One, with regard to those, uh, was it the, the bulk of the presentation deals with the issues that were raised with regard to administration of uh, claims. Um, we, we, we took a decision last time we made, we made that uh, we want to treat that one uh, outside uh, this uh, legislation process um, um, that we invite uh, uh, the fund uh, to come and brief us on those issues. I know you have started doing that, but uh, we will still continue with that because 
Also, we want to contact uh, those that uh, uh, complained and hear their side uh, and also request a proof on the allegation that they've made and and then uh, convene another meeting we've also said that in our in our uh, committee planning meeting last week all committees of the ncop uh, the strategic planning uh, session uh, our committee decided that uh, we still need to follow up on the issues that were raised uh, by the stakeholders with regard to the administration uh, of the of the claims uh, that that's one part. So I would also request members that we we don't deal with that uh, area for now. We'll have an opportunity where we'll invite uh, the fund to come and make presentation, uh, but also take into account the issues uh, that uh, would have been raised by uh, the stakeholders that we will contact. Um, the 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 second issue or the third issue or second issue yeah, with regard to netlag netlag is a is a result of a legislation uh, of parliament uh, but the point uh, we're making is that it, it it is a social dialogue uh, platform uh, it it makes it easier even for parliament because we don't have to start afresh with the legislation we focus uh, on the amendments uh, as presented by uh, the department, which is uh, also part uh, of uh, uh, the discussion at the at NetLAC level. Uh, so, so we still respect, and actually NetLAC reports to this committee as well. Uh, so we're not dismissing the discussion that are taking place at a network level, but all that was saying is that you can say here is an agreement from uh, network and we just uh, implement it as a as committee. So that's the point I was trying to make that we must still engage uh, parties uh, on their own uh, without necessarily years at uh, a, a, a program, I mean, an, an agreement. So just implement it. Um, the the third issue, I want to send you back on this one, uh, this presentation with regard to the, that part uh, that deals with the, the proposed uh, amendments by members. I uh, want you to do it the same way uh, that uh, you dealt with uh, the employment equity. Uh, stakeholders that made presentation must be able to see their presentation and also your responses to to the presentation. Um, now we are unable to, I mean, determine which uh, stakeholders you respond respond responding to. You know, unlike the presentation that was made by Miss Zwaki Mama Mama Shule with regard to the employment decree, because there was a template there uh, that Bosa said this. Uh, department agrees or disagree with this aspect and so on and so on as with regard to all with regard to all the the stakeholders that made submissions so i want to suggest that you do the same and that we get a, 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 that a report uh, by friday uh, so that when we deliberate next week uh, we have a clear 
a report on what each of the stakeholders say and also your responses to each of those. Because this one now, it's just a, a, a kind of like an overall a kind of a response to to the submission that we made and making it difficult for members to exactly know what each of the stakeholders said and what is your response with regard to to those stakeholders. But also the issue of the notices, I notice five, two, six, and six, one, five. There's still another process. We remember last time we we wanted to talk to the legal unit that is responsible for this bill. Uh, he has asked for more extension of time, and that he will be responding in writing uh, to this uh, notice uh, five two six because we must still respond to quite link because uh, they raised this issue uh, in the last meeting. Um, so I, at this stage, then I will uh, ask members to to, to ask questions. Uh, start with Honorable Dango, followed by Honorable Boshoff. Uh, um, I am a bit concerned if they can clarify the point of the pre-funders. Now, the pre-funders, as I understand it, are debt collectors. And debt collectors, by and large, are people who put you in serentious and staple your knees together, <clears throat> they're not going to perform the kind of, of services required. Also, I asked the question of those pre-funders in, in another meeting, I think it was employment of labor, as to what their margin of profit was, and they refused to answer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Honorable Bosa. Thank you very much, Chair, um, and thank you for the question that you asked with regard to COIDA giving us the same presentation as the EEA. Um, and on that, if we could ask Mr. Mafata, if I pronounce that correctly, yes. to make contact with the stakeholder that spoke on the 341 days that it took for a claim to be Um, finalized so that we can, if this is a once-off uh, or are there more than one or two or three um, third-party administrators that have the same problem with regard to time in which the fund completes a claim. We need to lay this to rest now because Mr. Mafata really stressed that it, it does not take 341 days. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Bosco. Honorable Maima. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Just uh, one targeting question for myself from the from the department. Uh, the uh, one of the uh, comments. Uh, submitted uh, on the bill is 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 the prefunder called court link and clearly uh, 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 one of the, the issues that they raise 
uh, given the the amount of claims as a, as a debt collector as raised by Honorable uh, Dango, is that uh, uh, there are many claims that have not been settled, and uh, the the impact of the amendment uh, to uh, 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 section 734 uh, through the insertion of those two sections uh, will have uh, an impact in terms of uh, the existing claim. So now uh, the proposals that they are making is that uh, the, 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 uh, the bill be made to apply retros- retrospectively and uh, just uh, understanding the uh, the uh, I mean from the presentation that we had I think it was last year or two years back on the uh, the uh, conceptual understanding and framework within which the principles of retrospectivity applies uh, is a bit tight. So now I want to get a sense from this, from the presenters to whether uh, this element of retrospectivity or, or the bill applying retrospectively to cover the claims, which is more than 1,000, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or more than that, more than that. Uh, what is the view with regard to the suggestions that it must apply, the bill must apply retrospectively to cover claims that are already submitted? Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Mwema. Any responses, uh, Commissioner and the team? Thank you, Chair. Uh, Chair, I'll just go first, and my colleagues will add. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Mkhalipu will also want to say something. Chair, the, I think we take note of all the comments that have been made. We will we'll certainly ready ourselves for that engagement from those administrative issues, and we'll make sure that we come ready and bring all the relevant information that is required. And I suppose I think it's in that engagement that Honorable Boshoff uh, also comments around the statements by the pre-funders and so on. Those things would then be put to to bed in those um, discussions. The, 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 the question on, the, on Honorable Dango, that was raised by Honorable Dango around the pre-funders, rather the comment, right? So I think that's the, 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 the if, if, the third parties are deeming themselves as debt collectors, which is even more concerning because then they play no role in administration of a COID claim, and they shouldn't be allowed to play such a role, uh, which is a bit more concerning. And I think it's why we want to be proposing that the minister be allowed to regulate the conduct of those that uh, call themselves third parties so that there is clear uh, uh, rules that everybody needs to comply with. Because as I said initially, the ultimate beneficiary of a COID legislation is an injured worker. An injured worker cannot be made to suffer while other people are benefiting because of the misfortune that the injured worker has, uh, that has befallen the injured worker. The, the, I think the issue of the, of the retrospectivity, I'm sure the, my legal colleague would respond more, but in instances such as these uh, where we are making amendments to the bill, there obviously would be transitional arrangements in terms of clauses that are changing. And if there's any arrangements transitional that relates to any claims that would have received, been received prior to the enactment of the amendments, uh, those would be covered then in the transitional uh, arrangements that would have been made as part of the 
the bill and my understanding is that any bill applies prospectively, but those transitional arrangements would then take care of some of the issues that uh, administrative that needs to be taken into account uh, on clauses that are affecting uh, workers. I'm not sure if my colleagues want to add, Chair. Thank you. Okay. Any, any additions? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I'm unable to raise the hand, so I, I, I hope you will pardon me for just uh, uh, responding without seeing my hand. It's okay. Uh, yes, I agree with the with the with the commissioner. Uh, in fact, legislation must apply uh, prospectively and not retrospectively unless it is actually the intention of the legislature that it must apply retrospectively. So I have looked at the transitional arrangement. We made uh, only two provisions. One relates to domestic uh, workers, domestic employees, that they would have three years to put in their claim with compensation fund, even though it is retrospectively to 1994 but those claims must come to us within three years of this bill becoming the law. And of course, the second one, it relates to the, to the licenses. So all other claims, because uh, by way of accident, and then by way of lodging that claim, there is legitimate expectation that uh, you have now acquired a right even though the claim is not yet adjudicated or liability accepted. Uh, such claim must be dealt with as if this bill had not become long. In other words, they must be dealt with as if they must be dealt with under the provisions of the principal act before amendment. Maybe that's what we also need to put in the transitional arrangements. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, the addition will be from uh, the Department of Employment and Labor, uh, which also includes uh, entity the, uh, uh, the compensation fund. Uh, anybody else other than the Department and Compensation Fund or members uh, of Parliament? Uh, I won't allow anyone else, if uh, you are not a member of parliament, you're not uh, from the department of the commission fund uh, to speak. Uh, I'll check with me from the department or from the commission fund, because I see the hand is up. Hey, good evening, uh, Chairperson and honorable members. Just to add, I'm from the compensation fund, just, oh, to, add to, okay, just to add to what the commissioner was saying. With regard to just one of the third parties that presented, just to give you an idea, I believe that we will trash this out in the session that we will have with you. We have received more than 550,000 invoices from the particular third party to the value of just over 1.9 billion rand. And we have uh, authorized for payment more than 1.7 billion rand, of which more than 1.4 billion rand was within uh, less than 40 working days. But I believe that when we have the session with you, we will be able to address this particular matters. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
was a bit worried. I thought we one of the stakeholders, <laughs> right? It indicated that the start of the meeting that uh, only the department, uh, compensation fund, and members uh, that are allowed to uh, to speak on the issue, because the stakeholders had their opportunity. Um, we will follow up as a committee. The committee secretariat will be conducting the the compensation fund will be also conducting the the stakeholders or so-called the third parties uh, or uh, service providers, medical it's uh, medical service providers, uh, those who want to 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 contribute uh, or, or raise issues uh, around these uh, processes of uh, uh, medical uh, claims. Uh, we will conduct them uh, as uh, Honorable uh, Bosho said, uh, so that uh, we deal with these uh, these issues uh, once uh, and for all. Um, but the I want to go back to the issue uh, that is going to assist the committee uh, that uh, we need a template uh, that uh, will indicate in terms of uh, each section of the of the bill uh, where stakeholders have made comments um, or proposals and also the response of the compensation fund with regard to the proposed uh, amendments uh, or comments that have been made by the stakeholders. So that kind of a template and the, the deadline will be Friday uh, for us to receive such a, a template. Agreed, uh, Mr. Matar. Commissioner? Agreed, Chair. Agreed, Chair. We'll submit it before Friday. Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much. Um, Committee Secretary, is there anything else? Yes, Chair. We have three sets of minutes to be adopted. And um, we have a quorum. Can we, can we just deal with the, this process of legislation and then with, uh, uh, when we deal with the annual report of the Department of Labor, we then deal with all the minutes uh, that are outstanding. Okay, all right. Thank you so much. Uh, that, that then brings us to the end of the meeting. Uh, next week, as I was indicating, we will first deal with the report from... Uh, the is it Mr. Mjengani? Yes, Mr. Mjengani. Yeah, yeah, around the issue of Coid uh, Link. Uh, yeah, including the issue of uh, the the notices uh, five two six and six one five. The 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 department has also responded to that issue there. A presentation that uh, it doesn't have an impact of the bill, but uh, we would like also legal advice with regard to that issue. Uh, yeah, and then we will then st start with the deliberation on both the employment equity and also the, the point, point uh, amendment bill. And then the following week, we, we deal with the, with the report. So that is going to be the process, honorable uh, members. Uh, if there is nothing else, I'll just give the opportunity if members want to make any comments before we close the meeting. Uh, 
and not. Let me take this opportunity then to thank uh, the honorable members uh, for their attendance and their participation uh, in the meeting. Uh, also thank the Department of Employment and Labor, uh, Mr. Mkalepi, uh, Mrs. Nzwadi, Mamash, I see in the list there, it's not complete. <laughs> there is, it's Mamashile. Mr. Voyon Matafa and Mr. Harry Mapolo Hela, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, thank you so much. And also, let's thank also the stakeholders that uh, made submission uh, last week. Uh, some of them are here to hear the responses of the department uh, on the submission that they made. Uh, you are welcome to also attend the meeting next week uh, to hear when members are deliberating uh, on the two bills. Uh, thank you so much. And also thanks to the staff of uh, the committee uh, and also other staff members of parliament. Thank you folks very much. Uh, the meeting is adjourned. And also, sorry, thank to the Office of the State Law Advisor uh, for also coming and attending the meeting. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Chair. Good night. Night. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Thank you Recording so much. stopped. Thank you, Jay.